is the Bloody Disgusting Podcast Network. This is not an advertisement for a new movie. This is a warning. Boils and ghouls, lock your doors and strap yourselves in. From Los Angeles, California, Bloody Disgusting presents the Boo Crew Podcast. Horror news, commentary, reviews, interviews, and more. With your hosts, Lauren and Trevor Shand and Leone D'Antonio. Hello, hello, it is Trevor. And on behalf of myself, Lauren and Leo, welcome home to your Boo Crew in episode 406. Hope you're well and the time of release are continuing to to enjoy your spooky season. There are so many damn exciting things happening in the horror space right now, isn't there? We just got the trailer for Zelda Williams and Diablo Cody's Lisa Frankenstein, and it looks absolutely genius! Cannot wait for it. William Brent Bell's folk horror Lord of Misrule is going to be on a few short months here. Tyler McIntyre and Michael Kennedy's It's a Wonderful Knife. You're being spoiled rotten with Fall of the House of Usher at the moment, when Evil Lurks is out on Shudder as we speak, and finally... Director Joe Lynch's cosmic horror magnum opus, Suitable Flesh, is in theaters and on VOD. This film is a cinematic journey. It's an IV drip of genre fan bliss made by one of the most passionate and creative filmmakers in horror. We've wanted to have this guy on forever. And you know when they say, never meet your heroes? Dude, he did not disappoint. He is everything you would hope he would be. And just the nicest guy ever with a genuine joy for all of this stuff. Everything he does is done with an extraordinary and palpable sense of wonder. And this body swap insanity that you're going to see if you haven't seen already, it is soaked in it. In addition to the movie, we talk about hanging out with Wes Craven, Argento. Quentin Tarantino, Del Toro, the movies that got him passionate about this stuff in the first place. And then we have an over-the-top gush fest about our mutual favorite band, Faith No More. Can it get better than this? I don't think so. Enough from me. We're going to drift right into it now. A conversation with Mr. Joe Lynch. Boot Crew Podcast 406 is now slaying. Go ahead, scream. That's all we need. Another victim crawls onto the gurney for a Boo Crew autopsy. Joining Bloody Disgusting's Boo Crew here in the Speakeasy studio is one of the most passionate and imaginative creators in genre cinema and beyond. After attending one of the top film schools in the country, he fell into the arms of the iconic Troma Entertainment. While Troma was pushing boundaries, creativity, and budget to the extreme, they brought him along for the ride, eventually landing him a writing gig. His debut feature in the director's chair was Wrong Turn 2 that remains as the most celebrated entry in the franchise. He ran the creative department for G4TV.com for many years, bringing it in directions that were way ahead of its time, inspiring much of the personality-driven pop culture content we even see today. He earned several accolades along the way, including a handful of Pro Max awards for his inventive commercial work, won Best Indie Film with 2011's Chillerama, gave us a startlingly unique Salma Hayek action thriller, Everly, at 2017's triple award-winning Mayhem with Samara Weaving and Steve Yoon, produced and starred in the cult hit TV show Holliston, held multiple episodes for Shutter Smash Creepshow. In his exciting career, he's done projects for everyone from Disney to Blumhouse, directed music videos for game-changing bands, including Faith No More and Strapping Young Lad, and he's one of horror's biggest advocates and fans, sharing and celebrating other filmmakers and creators on the long-running Movie Crip podcast alongside Adam Green 
Everything this guy does is done with fearless purpose, electric ingenuity, and respect and reverence for the genre and its audience. His brand new project, I'm telling you, is all of that rolled into one. It is a blood-soaked cosmic explosion, dripping with style and unbridled performances the likes of which you've never seen and probably will never see again, that magically seems to manifest those nostalgic and visceral feelings that ushered legions of horror fans into the genre, shot after shot in wildly unpredictable ways. And it follows a psychiatrist who becomes obsessed with a young patient suffering from an extreme personality disorder that spirals into an occult nightmare. Sound good? Well, it fucking is. We invite you to take the journey into suitable flesh in theaters and BOD October 27th. See it in theaters. You'll thank us later. We are honored to welcome his creator, Mr. Joe fucking Lynch. Oh, yeah. Guys, guys. Yeah. Dude, can you just speak at my funeral? That was, I felt like I was, I walking into your house felt like, like I saw, I said before, it felt like I had stepped into the good part of purgatory where like, you know, the, the, the dead is ushering you into swatches of your life, you know, like things that have touched you and, and, you know, made you who you are today. And most of that is movie props and, you know, and other tchotchkes from, uh, you know, all of my favorite films of all time that are festooned around your house. And then to hear that, and I'm like, this is the part where you tell me I'm dead, right? <laughs> right? Like, like I, I, I've died. Like, I actually was in a horrible car accident last week. Um, and now I'm feeling like maybe I did like a thousand percent you were in a, horror, a car accident yeah. last week? Really? I don't, I'm not going to joke about oh, that shit. I, I, I have a horrible sense of humor, a very dark sense of humor. But yeah, I was in a really bad car accident last week and uh, I'm fine. Obviously I'm here. Thank or God. am I? Right? Yeah. Honestly, well, that's like, it's making <laughs> me think like, the, you know, I have died and gone to heaven, honestly, <laughs> with you guys. And I'm glad. And I look, first off, I am so glad to be here. I love your show. I love what you guys do. I love that you are. Gabba Gabba Hey, one of us. And it me it means so much that you have cultivated this atmosphere of a true reverence for the genre. You know, like and then that's something that I mean, look, anytime you go to a Monster Palooza or you go to a convention mm-hmm. or you go to a festival that is in like more of a genre festival, or just go to Dark Dells on a Sunday afternoon and you run into people that, you know, you, you kind of like brush up against them and go like all right, so it chapter one or it chapter two, or have you seen, I saw the devil, you know, and you just spark up these conversations. And that's to me, the part of the reason why I make films, why I love films, why I love engaging in people and, and talking about cinema. So, you know, and we were just joking about this before. It's like, you know, doing press for suitable flesh, October 27th on theater and <laughs> theaters and VOD. Um, you know, it, it's been great and I'm blessed that I get to do it. But it, I got to admit, like when you do these tours and, you know, with Zoom and with remote press being so prevalent these days, oh, yeah. the opportunity to sit down with like minded psychos like you and be able to cut, you know, like just cut the rug, shoot the shit, chew the fat is a dream. And then I get to be in this atmosphere like this, this is a dream come true, dude. That honestly. means that means everything to us because yes. honestly, a lot of people do come in here. They do not give a shit about what's oh. here, and we, I, you, dude. And we honestly, you're like, gonna have to get the security guard what? to kick me the fuck out because <laughs> I'm not leaving. I'm done. I'm gonna tell my wife that. Well, and you know, she's a huge horror movie fan too. So like. Uh, it's going to be tough for you to uh, get rid of both of us. Oh, yeah. but man, it's because of people like you who create this stuff that 
we're living in it. You know, it's a constant source of inspiration, what you do. And you, I got to admit, you when we started the show back in 2017, we're at like 405 episodes in now or whatever. You were one of the first people we drew, we wrote down yeah. on our, our oh, wish list. Oh, you say that? No, 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 no. Yes, we were talking about the other day. You're honestly yeah. one of the first people yeah. we wrote down, and it was just it was a matter of timing and waiting for the the perfect project. And I mean, there there could not literally be a more perfect project for us to meet around. Well, I'm I glad it was. I'm glad it was this and not fucking Point Blank, <laughs> you know, because then it would have just been me shitting on Frank Grillo the whole time. So this this worked out for the best. I'm glad. I'm glad it was this movie too because. You know, I and and again, I I'm gonna do my best to not uh, go on autopilot mode um, because you know there there's certain questions that I'm sure that you're sure. gonna ask that I yeah. go like you know I'm checking off the boxes and I'm like pushing all the buttons of like this is what you say here and make sure you don't say anything stupid and make sure that it's a succinct answer and make sure you put the question in the answer and all that and make sure it has a little code at the end. Um, Any time that you have a moment where it's like. Oh, it's not the same old question or it's just a conversation and it, it just naturally feels like we are just kind of hanging out outside the new Beverly after a double feature of Nightmare on Elm Street Part Heaven, 3 man. and I language. know what you did last summer and mm. we're just kind of shooting the shit and then it goes off into tangents and these are these are the conversations that I cherish. So, but to be able to do it where you guys are in person, it, it means a lot. It really does, you know. So, so fire away, boys! Right, well, because this is a love letter to so many of the movies I know is. you love, yes, and that I love. And I mean, the best, the best part of this whole experience talking about the movie. And you know, truth be told, you know, it's me doing the dog and pony show because our cast can't because of the strike. Mm-hmm. You know, so I've been in one respect, it's been incredibly exhausting. But I'm so proud of the movie, as scrappy as it is, and I'll be the first person to be like, well, the flood, look at that there, and oh, that should have been, you know, totally different, and oh, God, they really screwed that up, or I screwed, it's usually me. Um, I'm really proud of the movie. And, you know, to be able to talk about it and not uh, make it feel like, I, I don't know what I'm talking about in terms of, like, Stuart Gordon, for example. Mm-hmm. Like, I love that man, and to be able to, ha- like, talk to people who've never heard of his name before, like and really because everybody knows reanimator but when you have someone who's like now let's talk about space truckers you know or um god there was a movie that he did with edward james almost uh um oh god the fabulous it's the name's escaped me now but it's like the something in the fabulous ice cream suit you know it's people bring that up yeah well no they don't that's the thing right you know it's always reanimator Mm -hmm. and from beyond but you know if you knew stewart's work he was so prolific and that's something that like as a filmmaker that wants to never be stuck in a box, um, like when you were talking about what, you know, that, that amazing intro that I'm going to literally just record and have put on like, uh, like in my coffin when I die, like some of the shit that you talked about, I'm like, Oh my God, wow, you really did your homework. I'm, I'm so impressed. Um, but to be able to talk about Stuart and in a way that, proves why he was who he was not just as a man but as an artist you know if there's one thing that i can like hopefully glean off of this experience is hopefully more people watch his movies and hopefully people see what i saw when i was 10 and i saw reanimator way too early yes i i I will be the first person to say that like kids don't watch reanimator when you're 10 or maybe do it and just you know know that you're not going to get everything you're going to get your kicks in some form but you're really not going to get like the 
black humor that's into it, you know, like, and, and some of the like weird shit that he's going thematically for. Those are the things that I'm like excited to at least expose to people. So if one person out there who's never seen reanimator or maybe they saw reanimator and never saw um from, from beyond. beyond i remember you know? if a dude seeing from beyond it completely changed my did life did you see I, it as a kid i did I, well not a kid i mean i started I, I was a late bloomer into horror i was terrified of horror really yeah my first horror movie was in elm street 3 when it came out in video wait so that was 87 88 yeah that's yeah. not a late bloomer i, th- like, I thought it was the same a, age no i no, thought no, it was no, a late no. bloomer not yeah. i i don't know here i don't know and and my apologies we're gonna go off and fucking yeah yeah, yeah it's like crazy yeah um, do you ever have it when someone like you're, you're talking about nightmare three, for example, right. And you'll be in line at the new Bev or you're talking to someone at a con or just, you know, shooting the shit and you go like, Oh my God, you know, nightmare three favorite one, Chuck Russell fucking nailed it. And someone's like, Oh, I never saw it. And there's one of two reactions that you usually see, especially like a classic movie like that. It's usually it's, oh, are you fucking kidding me? You've never seen that. What the fuck is wrong with you? I hate that so much because if I were that person and that's happened to me before, like there's movies that I, you know, I consider myself a nerd, but there's plenty of movies that I haven't seen. Sure. And whenever that's happened to me and someone's like, are you fucking kidding me? You've never seen the black cat, you know? I'm like, no. And like, now I kind of don't want to because you're kind of being an asshole yeah. about it. Yeah. You yeah. Know? yeah. It, it doesn't turn so, me so on gatekeepy. Yeah, almost, you know? exactly. Yeah. And you know, I, that's something that I've, tried really hard to not do and because i've seen other people do it and it really turns me off what i love doing is oh my god you are so lucky because you get to watch it now you get to watch it as a classic when nightmare 3 came out and you know it was a big hit at the box office but it's it doesn't have the reverence the historical reverence that that series has it doesn't have the films that came before it the films that came after it that prove that nightmare 3 is for all intents and purposes, like probably the most successful one mm-hmm. on so many levels. Now, that said, Nightmare 1, classic. Nothing to hold yeah. the torch yeah. to it. But Nightmare 3 is one of those movies that came out in that like splatter era. Yes. That I grew up with where, wait, so you can scare the shit out of someone, but you can also make them laugh. And you can have fun with it. And I mean, that's the one that codified Freddy as being like the icon that he was. And then, you know, then 4 turned him into a, an MTV icon in a way. But the point is I, I always cherish those moments when you get to pass along a movie to someone, but you, you have to do it with like kid gloves a little bit, but also with a celebration of the fact that they haven't seen it. So you being a late bloomer, I mean, I don't consider that being a late bloomer at all. Uh, like it's when someone who's like, Oh, I've never seen the exorcist. And you're like, Oh, how old are you? It's like, Oh, 52. And you're like, mm. well, but still at the same time, they get to watch it in a way that like they got to see you know historically how much that movie impacted people yeah and they get to see it as a parent instead of a kid you know think about this take a movie like poltergeist right that movie scared the shit out of me as a kid that movie scared the shit out of me as a teenager that movie scared the fuck out of me as an adult and as a parent yeah 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 different context right yeah different context that you get over the years when a movie because a movie doesn't age you age you age into certain demographics and you know when poltergeist came out i still think it is one of the scariest movies ever made and when i saw it as a kid i related to robbie you know or carol ann and then a couple years later i related to this the older sister and then now like i just watched it a couple years ago and as a parent 
And when you think like there is a difference in the terror in that film, because when you're a kid, it's fear of the clowns and it's fear of the unknown It's fear of the tree. It's fear of the closet. Then when you see it as an adult in the, in a different evolved context, you're now seeing it as fear of losing your kids. Yeah. That perspective change. That perspective is amazing that it can evolve like that. So when, you know, someone gets to watch a movie at a particular time in their life, even, you know, even when they say nightmare three, like if you saw it only as a kid and then you see it as an adult, it's a different movie. It's still an amazing film, but it, it has a different reverence to it. And I think one of the reasons why I think horror fans in particular are such a wonderful legion of people is that they will go back and watch those films. Mm-hmm. They, there is a love and a reverence for not just hopefully movies that are coming out today, but more importantly, films that touched us as kids, not the bad touch, but a good touch. And then we will want to and engage in seeing those movies again in different purviews. Because a lot, I think the thing that, you know, a lot of Stuart Gordon movies had, a lot of the movies that I grew up with, what we grew up with as kids and now see as adults, you know, we get to see them in in a generational like point of view that is so much more exciting when you get to watch it with different eyes every couple of years, you know, and because, you know, starting September 1st, that to me, that's when spooky season starts. And then I have a legitimate reason to start like every night watching a horror movie because well, <laughs> Halloween's coming yeah, up, you know, yeah. we, I don't, there's not, there's not many people out there that are like, you know, huge romantic comedy fans. That's that the thing. What other genre no, has this? There is no yeah. genre like horror that has conventions that bring people together that have, you know, um, you know, holidays that bring people together that have experiences, stores, immersive experiences, museums, yeah, exactly. houses, <laughs> you know, I, now truth be told, I did walk through your house and you, and took many copious pictures of the notebook, from right? The notebook, the notebook Bridget Jones <laughs> now and, and the bridge and the literally the diary of, I can't wait to show that one off. Like, I'm like, Oh my God, you have the fucking diary from Bridget Jones's diary. See kids, you know what? You don't have to just be a horror fan to appreciate all forms of cinema. But we are legion as horror fans. And every movie that I make comes from a place of that love. And, you know, you don't need to see it. You know, like like we were talking before offline. You know, Suitable Flesh is my love letter to Stuart Gordon films, to um, uh, film noir of like the, not just the 40s, but the 90s. Yeah. Erotic thrillers that yeah, we all like watched. Yeah, those 80s yuppie. The, all those, all those <laughs> Skinamax movies yeah. from the 80s and 90s. Yeah, that the, you, any movie with like James Spader in it and like James early Spader 90s or Michael like, Douglas, yes, those yes. cautionary tales. Yes. Like, it's a love letter to those as well. It's a love letter to Lovecraft, or I like to call it a lustcraft, if you will. Um, it, it is, every time I make a movie, I am paying back to all of those filmmakers and all those films that shaped me as a person that scared me, that turned me on, that delighted me, that gave me solace or even just escapism from some really fucking hard times. Mm -hmm. And every time that I do that, I hope that someone gets the same kind of escape that I did back in the day. So, you know, that's, that's kind of why I do it. And what I, what I try to do every time. I wanted to mention something just going back to, sorry, I mentioned, you know, no, 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 you got the wheels turning, man. This is good. When you talked about movies that people have seen for the first time, one thing I'm noticing, a big generational thing I'm noticing, we've got a lot of people who are coming in, young actors, young Mm -hmm. filmmakers, we're about the age of Spencer, you know, Spencer from Ice Night Kills, right? Guy like that, a lot of those people, lots of those people come in, their first horror movie, and this is interesting, Scream. Yeah. 
Scream was the that first was their movie gateway. they saw. That was the gateway. Yep. And what an interesting gateway because it it's so meta that it references, you know, a history of horror films. That so, so inside of it, it's locked in a whole different universe that they can explore to even understand were, the context. And exactly. they go back and watch it. So unique. Yeah. Like it's a real monumental film in that way. It was interesting to see that movie opening night. It was like, what, December 16th, 2006? Sorry. No, no, it's uh, 1996. Right. Um, I was excited for it because it was Wes Craven. And at the time it was called scary movie. Um, when they, when they covered it in Fangoria, the first article called it scary movie. Oh, I did and then they that. had to change it because of the Com- rights. Issues. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it was, uh, there was an experimental film that I had seen in film school called scary movie. And when the, you know, that was the original script that was on the, the slate and everything. And then, um, because of the rights issue, uh, Miramax had to pull it and call it scream. So um, that has nothing to do with this, this, this story at all, but a little fun tidbit. Um, when I saw that movie, I remember seeing it and most of the jokes went over people's heads that were all of the nods to horror movies yeah. in most cases. Um, because at the time, you know, at least in the, the early to mid 90s. And I hate that, that people go like, well, the 90s really sucked for horror movies. I'm like, no, not necessarily. It's just they didn't have quite the cultural impact until Scream hit. You know, right. before that, maybe, you know, if you look at, you know, if you look at 1990 and you look at like Tremors and Exorcist 3 and Misery and uh, Darkman and Hardware, like 1990 alone, just fuck it. Pretty, it blew yeah, its wad. Awesome. And then for years, there was like, you know, little fits and spurts here and there. But horror, you know, especially the slashers, um, they, they weren't in the public lexicon as much, but even just the reverence for all of those films, there wasn't a language to revere those films until scream. And I, I mean, I never felt more in touch with a movie than scream was that night when I watched it, I was like, I never thought I would watch a movie that felt like it was just made for me mm-hmm. because I felt like I was almost every character. It wasn't just Randy. I was everybody in that movie for one reason or another. Yeah. And you're right though. Like scream was a touchstone film for another generation. Mm-hmm. Whereas for us, whether it was, I mean, I feel like with our generation, um, maybe a little bit before that they had, you know, Texas Chainsaw Massacre and maybe even Halloween. I was a little too young for Halloween. Yeah, me too. Um, Funny enough, my first movie was Dawn of the Dead when I was three. My mom couldn't get, my mom couldn't get a babysitter and took me to go see Dawn of the Dead. And I remember that shit, but I don't have, I mean, it's one of my favorite movies of all time, but it wasn't like what American Werewolf in London or Evil Dead 2, you know, or Friday the 13th part four was for me or return of the living dead was for me. Friday four is those, uh, so well, fucking fr- good. Okay. All right. <laughs> I love Friday. We're, four. Right, it's my we're, favorite. We're tangenting again. <laughs> sorry. Sorry. <laughs> listeners out there. Okay. I need to know your thoughts. Yeah. Friday five. Ouch. 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 Dude. Uh, honestly, like first one, fourth one. And then I kind of, I, I you try, peter out. I've, I've, I've tried so many times to sit there and watch, like I'm going to watch every single one. And then I just start, they start fading into each other when we get like the seven and the, the telekinesis and all that yeah, stuff. Yeah, is, is that the fifth one, the telekinesis? I think no, no, seven, no, no. seven is telekinesis. No. It's kind of like fifth the one, one. The new beginning the is beginning. the one where it wasn't Jason. That's right. 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 Uh, I'm here to, to uh, sell you both. On the glory that is Friday Real? Five. Okay, I'll I'll go back and rewatch it under. Uh... Trust me. First off, it was directed by a porn director, Danny Steinman. 
who started out in porn and then did a movie called Savage Streets with okay. uh, Linda Blair. Yeah. And then was kind of, you know, by Frank Mancuso, hired to make Friday, uh, Friday Five after Josito was out. And, you know, they were essentially rebooting the series because at the time they were like, well, how are we going to bring Jason back? Yeah, He's got a machete chapter, to the head. That's it. Yeah. And, and I think no one would disagree that four is the best one. And it is, you know, I think it's the, it's the, the apex of that series. It all kind of goes downhill from there. That said, Crispin Glover, Savini, oh, dance and Savini, Corkscrew. Where's that's, the Corkscrew? That's the thing with, with four. That's another movie like Scream. That I, it was one of the first times that I felt seen because Corey Feldman was us. Yes. And before it was, you know, uh, horny teens and dope smokers. Yes. And they usually died. And this little kid. When you put a little kid and his dog in the, in the harm's way. And those stakes are immediately raised. And that's where I was like, oh shit. Wow. Like, like I can die too. And at the same time, that kid, wait, is that issue 14 from Fangoria on his wall. Oh my God. Like that. Yeah. And, and he's got Tom Saviti masks in his house. Exactly. That's, that's fucking me. When you get to five, you know, I think one of the things that, um, with the Friday series, once it got supernatural, it kind of, it, not that it lost me. I still enjoy them a lot, but after like, when you look at three and four, you are now teetering on the line of supernaturalism where mm-hmm. it's like, all right, Jason is an unstoppable killing machine. Whereas before, like with two, you go, he's just angry because his mom died and mm-hmm. three. Okay. Maybe he's, you know, had some trauma to his body, but he's not, maybe he's not dead between three and four. That fucker is dead. How the fuck is he still alive? So you start to having, you start having to, um, uh, suspend disbelief a little bit. Now, after the initial shock of knowing the twist that in five, sorry, spoiler kids, it's not, it, it's not Jason, it's Ray the ambulance car driver. Right. Um, once you get past that, that is arguably one of the most effective and sleazy and mean slashers like back in like 1981 to 83 when you're talking mm-hmm. about the burning and the prowler and my bloody, my bloody Valentine, even going back to like the nastiness of like Black Christmas when slashers were scary and unrelenting and there's just something sweaty and sleazy and sexy about that movie. Uh, One of my first dates with my now wife, we went to go see a 2 PM matinee of Friday five at the new Beverly. And I was like, the fact that she was like, let's go. I'm like, I love you, dude. Yes. Marry you right now. We're in. And we went, and it was a sold out show. It was mostly a very queer audience, which was crazy. And that I never saw the movie from that purview before, but I went, man, this movie's kind of gay as fuck. Like in the best way possible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was like, fuck yeah, man. Um, and it just, it has a sleazy resonance that I think people don't give enough credit to. And I'm telling you, anybody who's listening out there, just give it another shot. I'm telling you, it will become one of your favorites because it's like it when you far remove it from the Voorhees lineage which is weird because it is right smack dab in the middle of the Tommy Jarvis stories right you know when you, and right. and that was one of the first times that I had ever seen a, a like a, a horror series that had a serialized kind of component to it you know you know Nancy Coe's comes back from one to three but that almost felt like a cameo and then from three to four then you have the Elm Street kids and then they get killed off and then you have Alice that's fine, but there's no real connection to them where you watch Tommy Jarvis grow up and it was us. 
it was Corey Feldman. And then we, by the time we get to Tom Matthews, you're like, my God, like I, I feel like I've grown up with this yeah, kid you're attached and, to and, it. and tried not yeah. to, you know, get killed by Jason. So anyway, so I told you tangents. No, that's good. That's told good. You. Now, now everyone's going to go watch Friday. Hopefully Five, man. look, if you like it, great. If you don't, uh, blame Paramount Pictures. Like, like, it wasn't my choice. It wasn't my choice at all. <laughs> all right. Well, okay. Su- suitable flesh. Now, I got to hear this story because I. So this script was kicking around for a while. Like Dennis Paoli wrote this fucking movie. Yeah. Reanimator from Beyond Castle Freak. Like the legend. Yeah. So what did you know about this? Was it kicking around for a while? Were you chasing it? What no, happened? no, no, no. I was, so, um, our good friend, Mick Garris, uh, who, you know, um, you know, one of the masters of horror yeah. who started the masters of hard dinners where the, these were these gatherings that he would have at the hamburger Hamlet, uh, where he would have all of the, all of our heroes sitting around a table, eating burgers and commiserating, commiserating about why the, the industry sucks. You know, and, yeah, I've and, seen some of the pictures like Del Toro, right? Rodriguez. So did I. Tarantino. And I would so you there were there. Go, Dude. Well, I yeah. got um, after wrong turn Two. Mick. I saw something in me. Yes, and went, like, would yeah. you want to come to one of the dinners? And I'm like, really? I, it felt like I was being knighted. Of course. Like, I felt like I was going into like a secret society. Yes. The like secret. That. Yeah. The it Masons. Was, dude, it was. Yes. It was crazy because you sit around that table and you're like, holy shit, holy shit, holy shit, holy shit, holy shit. Here's one story that, that you guys will enjoy. And I'm sorry if I'm going to take off all your time. But no, this fucking is worth tell it. it. I can't so wait. <laughs> I'm, you know, I'm sitting across from all of these heroes of mine. You got Joe Dante and John Landis and Toby Hooper, <sighs> like sitting there talking to Toby Hooper about the worst cut in the world and poltergeist. And he's just like. Hey man, the fucking the negative cutter was drunk. You know, it's like the, these are the things that I go to those dinners for, and they're like, "Who the fuck is this kid?" But I was just like sitting there, just jerking them all off, and just going like, "You're the best!" Like I love you guys, and um, you know. And then there's Del Toro, and and that's where I first met Stuart, and he sat next to me during one of the dinners, and we just struck up this conversation, you know, because it's one of those things where he's like, "Who you know? Who are you kidding? What did you do?" And I'm like, "Oh." I'm, made this direct-to-video film called Wrong Turn 2, sir. And he's like, oh, really? And, you know, of course, and he goes like, well, where can I see it? And of course I had a fucking copy. I'm like, Whoosh. I just pulled that shit out right there. Of course I did. I had a whole fucking, like, like, uh, like trunk filled with them. Yeah. <laughs> just handing them out willy-nilly. Um, but we, we became really good friends. And so um, this one story, which always kills me, is... Uh, Mick would they, he would kind of randomly have them. They, there was never like once a month or yeah. anything. It would just be like every couple months or you know sometimes even like a year goes by. But then you get that email and you're like, oh, oh boy, oh boy, here we go. And uh, at one time there was this special occasion and it was when uh, Argento was coming into town and everybody was just like, oh shit, because he was doing the movie Yellow at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know results may vary but you know it's still it was argento coming into town and we were all really excited so um we go to the hamburger hamlet and uh he shows up and at this point pretty much all the regular players were there and when argento showed up his first time that he had ever come and uh it lines up like it's a fucking mafia movie where everyone is paying their respects to the godfather he goes down the line and he's saying like, oh, Larry Cohen, I love, oh, Bill Lustig, oh my God, Joe Dante, how are you? I'm doing a terrible Argento, but you get my point. I love it. <laughs> and he's just going down the line and there's me and I'm standing next to Wes Craven and we had become friendly a little bit. And um, 
and you know, and then there's and Adam's next to him, and and we're all just like, what do we do? And and also I'm sitting there going, he's gonna get to me and go, hey you, how you doing? <laughs> you know, I had no clue how this was gonna work out, and I shit you not. He, I'm, I'm standing. It was actually, it was, uh, standing next to Dante and he's like, Joe, oh my God, I love him. Like, oh God, I hope he knows that my name's Joe too. Uh, he, he looks at me and goes, Joe Lynch, I love, and no. kisses me on oh, both shit. cheeks. And I swear to God, he must have done fucking research or something, or he had like a private eye scope us out and give it like, give him information or he just went on IMDb. Who knows? But I will never forget that because then he goes to Wes Craven. Wes, so good to see you. And he kisses Wes and he keeps going down the line. And I, I guys, I will never forget this moment. I turn to Wes Craven. Wes Craven turns to me and we look like a bunch of fucking fangirls. We're like, oh my God, oh my God, we got kissed on the cheek by fucking darn gentle. Both of us were freaking out like we were, oh, we man. just stood in line for four fucking hours to be, like, waiting to meet. kids on the block or exactly. something. Exactly. Yeah. No, NKOTB. It was probably <laughs> <Yeah>. NKOTB. <laughs> but, Mad respect. But, you know what I mean? Like, wow. And the, the reverence that each of these directors had for each other and the commiseration that they would have, like, that was part of the reason why we started the movie crypt was because it's almost therapeutic when you can sit in a room with other filmmakers because filmmaking can be in very isolating mm -hmm. situation. Um, and you always feel like whenever situation you're in, whether you're dealing with why is this script not getting made or, Oh my God, I can't make a day or they, they took the cut away from me or my movie got buried. There's a million things that we've all heard about, like all the trials and tribulations of filmmaking. And you feel like it's only happened to you. And then you sit in a room with other filmmakers and you realize everybody goes through it. Yeah. Makes it a little easier it to deal with. It makes it so much more easy and it's so much more palpable. I had that happen with me on uh, this movie, Nights of Bad Aston, where, you know, I was going through fucking hell on that movie. And then we had Don Coscarellian, who became a really good friend of mine, which blows my mind to begin with that I can even say those words yeah. because I grew up with fucking Phantasm. Phantasm. Yeah. And but I also grew up with the Beastmaster. And oh, nice. the Beastmaster was on every other day on HBO and to the point where we all joked that HBO stood for, hey, Beastmaster's on. <laughs> and uh, nice. and one day Don came onto the show and we're just sucking him off. We're waxing his car left and right and we get to Beastmaster and it was like he, his whole demeanor changed. And really? this was in the middle of me going through hell on Nights of Bad Astem. And ultimately he goes, oh, they took the cut away from me. Everything he described was exactly what I was going through on nights of bad Aston. And that's where everything changed for me, where I went, Oh, if, if that could happen to him, it could happen to me. And if that, all this shit happens to me and people still love the movie, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like it, it's, it's a very weird dynamic. So ultimately having these relationships with all these, like these directors was like therapeutic and very um, inspiring to me. Cause it's like, I'm watching all of my heroes and they just, they're just regular guys. They're just normal everyday schmoes who we held up on this high pedestal and, you know, and next thing you know, you're talking to Toby Hooper and he's like, man, my mortgage really sucks. And you're like, it's a, you're a God, Fucking man. Yes. Like, you, you have mortgages, but that's how ultimately that's how I met Stuart. And to finally answer your question, that's how I found out about uh, the thing at the time it was called the thing on the doorstep. That's the HP Lovecraft story that um, was adapted by Dennis. They started it in like, the mid aughts, maybe like it was, it was 15 years. They were kicking it around Jeez. and this was going to be their 
Blues Brothers getting the band back together situation where it was going to be Stuart directing and, and Dennis writing and Brian producing and probably bring Jeffrey and, and Barbara back into the fold. This was there. Like if you knew those movies, yeah. this was, you know, it's like what Flanagan does where he has this like company of actors and collaborators and you get excited every time they get together. So this was going to be their, probably their final get together. And Stuart was talking so passionately about it. I remember being at this master's dinner and, you know, being a huge Tarantino fan, you know, Quentin's sitting next to me and I'm just like, go on, Quentin, go on. Dude, I can listen to him read a phone book. Exactly. He (laughs) was talking about ready. So he was talking about how he was just about to go shoot uh, hateful eight. And he was shooting it in 70 millimeter. And how, I still remember seeing that, the Cinerama Dome. Yeah. And the fucking, you got the program it and everything. fucking amazing. Fucking the whole, so the, cool. the road show version. Yes, yes. So get best. this shit. Christmas, right? It was yep. like Christmas, I remember. Get this shit. The same, so he shot that movie on the same lenses as Ben-Hur. No shit. And he was like, okay, all right, I got these lenses and they're fucking from Ben-Hur, all right? And I'm like, <laughs> and I was just wrapped. I was sitting there going like, tell me everything. And then I hear Stuart, who was sitting next to me, because I think he was talking to Tom Holland, again, mind blow. Um, and he was talking about this new script. And as much as I wanted to hear about like what Quentin was doing with these Ben-Hur lenses, I was like, what, what was that, Stuart? And he, that's how he talked about the thing in the doorstep. So I knew as a fan, I was excited about this project. It was, do you guys, um, do you remember the Terra Teletype in Fangoria? Yeah. Yeah. That that was our internet back in the day when you would hear about like they're making another Friday the Thirteenth. Holy shit! Wait, right. Ghoulies Four. Like that's where you heard like all the like all the films that were announced. Now you go on and you know you go on Bloody Disgusting and you see like oh shit wow they're making another Leprechaun. Yeah. You know, yeah. but back in the day that little box was it was everything gold. Mm-hmm. So for me to hear that as a fan, that was like hearing a live tick like ticker yeah. of. The, the you know of the terror teletype like oh my god there's no dude. other way you'd find that out yeah so that was just how i heard about it and how excited i was for it as a fan and then Stuart passed in march of 2020 and it was one of those things that you go well i guess we're never gonna see that yeah you know and it was a real bummer because i knew that story it was one of the original like body swap stories that i'd ever heard of um, well before, you know, this, this, this was written well before Freaky Friday and vice versa and like father, like son and all those movies, right. 18 again, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All those gems. Um, <laughs> you know, George this was Burns. the uh, yeah, fucking George Burns, man. <laughs> um, this was, you know, this was a classic story that, that kind of started off that body swap paradigm and subgenre. And the fact that we were never going to get Stewart's version of that was really fucking depressing. And then a couple weeks go by and this is in the middle of the pandemic and everybody's kind of like, what are we going to do with our lives? And I was going through both professional and personal shit badly. And then this email shows up and it says from Barbara Crampton. Now I knew Barbara. I didn't know her extremely well. I we were friendly and we met a couple times. Um, but I wasn't like on a like, Hey Babs, what's up? Yeah. Kind of level. It was, you know, it's like, Oh, there, look, there's Barbara Crampton. Maybe she remembers me. And I had gotten this email from her and Dennis was, was CC'd. And, um, it said, you know, Hey Joe, I'm not going to do a Barbara Crampton, uh, voice, but I'll make the, I'll make the face ready. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you're pretty close, Opening right? his mouth wide. 
and moving to the side. I know and, exactly. uh, and she had said, like, look, I have this script. And and she really buttered it up by saying, like, um, you know, Stuart was going to originally direct this. And, um, you know, before he died, uh, we had asked him who he would want to, you know, possibly take a look at this. And supposedly he said my name and I'm wow. like, and then that to me, like, I don't know if you ever heard the story about Walt Disney about the, like, you know what Walt Disney's last words were? No. Ready? Yeah. Hit me. Kurt Russell. Are I sh- you, I sh- you, you fucking not. serious? Yep. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. It, I mean, like, because at the time, well, I remember he was, Kurt Russell's like really young and doing a lot yeah. of those, like when he was doing the computer war tennis shoes yes, and everything, yeah, yeah. supposedly that's the lore is that the last words that he said were Kurt Russell. Yeah. So to me, that's the first thing I thought. I'm like, holy shit, was he on his deathbed? And then out came Joe Lynch. Now, then the first thing, I, then the next thing I thought was maybe he meant David Lynch, <laughs> I, you know, or like Richard Lynch. I love that actor. Oh, man. And then also thought like, all right, now this is where Barbara's like bullshit producer hat goes on. And she probably had 11 or 12 people down the right. road. And then finally <laughs> said like, well, those guys are all unavailable, Stuart. Who else? You know? But that that's what she told me. And that made me go like, well, cool. That's amazing. Holy shit. But then the, the you know, I read the script and, you know, again, I'm reading this script as a total fanboy, not totally. Anytime I get a script or that I'm writing a script or when I, you know, I'm given a script to consider. Yeah. I immediately put my filmmaker cap on and start going like, okay, how would I shoot this? And what are the themes here? I would break it down both thematically and production wise. And those are some of the factors that go into me wanting to make the movie. And I remember reading it less as that and more of like, Oh man, Stuart would have done this and he would have done that. And that would have been cool. And God damn it. And by the end, at the same time, when it all kind of came to a head, no pun because of reanimator, um, I, I was really excited at the possibilities because I didn't read it just to break it down. I read it as like just a story. Yeah. And at the same time, I got really bummed because it was, it was pedestrian. And I don't mean that in, in any disrespect to, to Dennis. He'll be the first person to tell you that as it was, and it was very slavish to the original story. It was two men as the protagonists, not two women. That's the original story. Interesting. It was two men. It was um, instead of Elizabeth Derby, it was Edward Derby. And um, instead of Daniela Upton, it was Daniel Upton. And Asa, the, uh, the young boy in our film, was actually a woman, was a young girl. And immediately I went, you know, if this was 1995 and we were seeing this all the time in movies and people just kind of went like, that's fine. You know, older man, younger woman, totally, totally cool. Michael Douglas would probably star, you know. That went, that made, that kind of turned me off because I'm like, well, I don't think that would play in this day and age and in this kind of cultural purview that we're in now, which is a good one to be in. It, I, I just don't think that it would feel old fashioned in the wrong ways. Yeah, true. Yeah. And immediately I, uh, you know, and at, at the time my now wife, you know, who I was started writing with at the time, um, she was in Europe and I was back in the States and, you know, she was, you know, during the pandemic and she had eight hours ahead. So at the end of me reading the script before bed, I went, Oh man, what if it was two women 
What if it was, what if the leads were women and not just to check off some boxes, but you could do something really cool with this. And you know what? That would be something that fucking Stuart would probably do too. And it would probably make it a lot more provocative and a lot more complex, and a lot more dangerous if we set it like that. And it shouldn't be dangerous. Let me just say that it shouldn't be dangerous that older women can have sex and that older women can, you know, have dalliances outside of their marriage. They're not just tethered to the homestead. They're not just, you know, like these paradigms of maturity and complacency and, um, you know, like, and, and are sexless. Older women can fuck too, guys. Just saying, you know, (laughs) it's totally fine. And, you know, but that felt awesome. That felt dangerous. And that felt like something I wanted to do. So I, wrote my email to uh, to my writing partner and just said, what do you think? And what if we did this? And then uh, I, I go to sleep and then I wake up and again, she's out eight hours ahead. What I get back is this like 30 page thesis on what we could do if we like thematic reasons, but also from a female gaze, not just, you know, an email going like, oh, you just want to do that because you want to see boobies. You know, it was there was some serious thought put into that. And then I read it and went like, well, I'm fucking stealing that shit. Yeah. And that's what we sent to, um, to, uh, to Dennis and to Barbara. And with the caveat of knowing they're likely going to say no. Sure. They're probably going to go, eh, hard pass. We'll go to somebody right. else. They've been sitting with this for a long exactly. time. And yeah. and yeah. And like, here's this, you know, this douchebag who's coming along thinking he can just kind of like change everything. And Dennis actually admitted that to us on my show a couple days ago where he was like, I was really precious to that story. And when I got that note, I was like, God, no. Mm. And then he thought about it. And then Barbara thought about it. And then they wrote back to us and said, let me think about it. And three weeks later, we got a draft that wasn't just them going into final draft and changing all the names. They, they delved, they delved deep into the ideas of what it would like to be a female therapist that has this kid come into their you know their world and turn it upside down it was so much more exciting it was so much more resonant it was so much more sexy like i got to admit like you know i was sitting there going like at the time when i read it with the guys i'm like oh god it's not really sexy at all seeing a bunch of old guys you know doing this thing nah not for me um but when we changed it around a little bit it got so much more erotic yeah and that got me you know, I won't lie. I got a bit of a Cinnaboner. And, uh, and then from there, when we were fucking off to the races and th- that really set the tone for the rest of the film. And that's when Brian Usna got involved. Yeah. He originally, I saw Brian Usna's you know, name and, in there, man. And yeah. one of the best pieces of advice that Brian gave me that kind of, um, uh, kind of connects itself to this is that, you know, Stuart was one of those directors and this is just my own personal feelings. Um, Stewart was one of those directors like um, David Cronenberg and um, Paul Verhoeven and Claire Denis uh, that were natural provocateurs. You know, like they were pushing buttons, but for the right reasons, you know, like they, they weren't playing it safe with their storytelling, whether it was with the sex or the violence or the themes, you know, they, they were trying to engage the audience and provoke them a little bit because there's nothing worse than just kind of sitting there and letting a movie wash over you. Like I, I want to be challenged a little bit mm-hmm, sometimes. Mm-hmm. And this felt like that kind of moment. And Stuart was one of those directors. Yeah. And, uh, I'll never forget it. I was at Barbara who loves just to get people together to party. She just loves gatherings. 
And she got everybody together to uh, at the El Coyote, uh, which is the Mexican restaurant across the street from the New Bev. Yeah. And uh, so we're all sitting there over a plate of nachos and drinking margaritas and Brian shows up and I'm like, oh my God, this is the first time I met him. And I'm like sitting there going like, I have so many questions about society and the dentist and like, like he's, he's one to me, he's another icon. Yeah. And, uh, I introduced myself and he's like, oh, you're Joe Lynch. Oh, wow. You know, like, and, and we start talking and everything. And I, I, you know, I did the typical thing. Everybody's, do you have any advice? You have any advice for a young filmmaker who's trying to, you know, to pass the torch on from, from Stuart and, and try to make a good movie for you? He goes, yes, I do. Uh, you know, and, and he knew the lineage of the project because he was involved at some point. And, um, you know, cause I said, like, I want to make this my love letter to what Stuart would have done. You know, I want to make it my own, but you know, like, I don't want to do what I can, but I also want to make sure that I'm tipping the hat in the right places. What would you have any advice? And he goes, honestly, just, you know, if you, if you're ever confused about a situation like that, whether it's a setting up a shot or talking to an actor, you know, Stuart's work, it seems like better than I do. Just ask yourself, what would, what's would, what would Stuart do? Wow. And you know what? It was really fucking helpful in certain cases. There are certain scenes that I can sit there and I can almost see either a Jedi ghost version of Stuart, like off in the corner, like, you know, going, hmm, or no, or a little like Stuart, like on my shoulder, yeah. going, like, going like, ah, hold on, the, hold on the master, Joe, hold on the master. That was, that was really helpful. But then on the flip side, uh, the night before we shot, I'll never forget this. Um, I have this ritual where um, every time that I, uh, every time I start a movie, I watch the Coen brothers blood simple. Have you guys ever seen blood simple? I have not. Oh my God. See now this is the moment where one douchebag would go, yeah, you've what? never you seen, seen blood simple. What the fuck? You call yourself a fucking fan? Like, right. Um, you dude. Um, and I, and I say this to the, the, the audience listening out there. Um, if you even have a cursory appreciation for the Coen brothers, um, this was the movie that, that, you know, it was their first film. Uh, they worked with Sam Raimi, um, you know, before Joel was an assistant editor on evil dead mm-hmm. and they, they hooked up with, uh, Sam and Bruce Campbell. They, Sam and Bruce actually helped them make a short film version of blood simple to get money to make it right. So they have the same kind of, uh, they have the same blood. And funny enough, and this is another dumb fun fact, both Evil Dead 2 and Raising Arizona came out on the same day and bombed on the same day. So there's there's a little interesting. But Blood Simple, when you watch, if you know the Coen brothers work at all, you know, they are so self-assured and they're so um, confident. And, you know, like when you watch a Coen brothers movie, you know, you're watching a Coen brothers movie, whether it's Inside Llewellyn Davis or, you know, No Country for Old Men, even the Lady Killers, Fargo, uh, Miller's Crossing, Barton Fink. I'm a huge fan. A lot of times when you have, you know, filmmakers just starting out, you know, we're making mistakes. It just happens, you know, whether you're going in with hubris or in, you know, or, um, you know, ignorance, if you will. Like, there's always going to be things that you go like eh, a little rough around the edge, especially when you have no money. You can watch Blood Simple and know that those guys knew exactly what they were making. That's a Coen Brothers movie, even if they had absolutely no money. It is so inspiring to watch. So I watch it. It was after Everly. I, I watched it the night before I started shooting that because I found out that the same uh, windows that are in Blood Simple, I, because I just had it in my head, I literally ripped off for Everly, these like half moon windows. Then I watched it in Blood Simple and went, oh my God, I totally ripped those off. But watching that movie is so inspiring because you don't need a lot of money. 
You don't need a lot of time. You just need to believe in yourself no matter what you have. And those guys believed in themselves. They knew they were like to the point where they were probably cocky about it. And that's great. I'm like, whatever it takes to get what you need. But I watch that every single time I make a movie, I watch it on day zero. I watch it that night and I go to bed feeling like I can take on the fucking world. Oh man, it's your pump up song, right? It is. See what you go into the ring to. Yep. It it is. It is my intro song. But the reason I bring that up is I finish that movie and I'm ready to go to bed and the phone rings and it's Barbara. Now, Barbara is also a producer on this film. So whenever you get a call from the producer the night before, you're like, oh, oh shit. shit. Yeah. What location dropped out? Yeah. Who died? What actor decided to not show up, you know, or is, or is like balking about money? What's the problem? And that's the last thing you want. Be like, I sit there and I, like when I watch Blood Simple, I turn my phone off because I don't want to be disturbed. I don't want to have that bad call. So the second I turned it back on again, ring, 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 and it's Barbara. And I'm like, oh, fuck like just waiting till my heart sinks and you know i try to be a glass half full kind of guy but that was a moment where i'm like the glass is fucking empty and it's barbara and she you know i pick up the phone i'm like hey barbara oh no i I call her boss i love doing that and she's like hey joe and she said the nicest thing to me she goes you have been so um dedicated to making this a Stuart gordon film and I appreciate that. And I know Stuart would appreciate that. And everybody appreciates that. And we love you for it. Now it's time to make a Joe Lynch film. And that just knocked my socks off in the best way possible. That that and Blood Simple, getting that at the same yeah, time. right. That encouragement. Was, was so important to me because like, I knew that I, I had Stuart's DNA in my blood making it. You know, like I knew that there were things that I wanted to do that were going to be, whether it was, you know, the themes, whether it was the cameos, whether it was even the way that I directed the actors. Stuart had a very particular way of working with his actors. And I tried to emulate that as much as possible with, but never looking past the fact that he'll never be here and he'll never be able to fully realize this the way he wanted to. But if I could minimize the the game of telephone between him and the dead or me and the dead and be able to present something that felt like a Stuart Gordon yeah. movie, but at the which same you already time, know it's exactly. already in your intuition it's already there. Yeah. But then I also, I have a real fetish for Brian De Palma movies and I love split screens and split diopters and spinning cameras. Mm. And you know, I grew up with Raimi where the yes, camera like dark man. And yes, exactly. Yes. When you can have an expressive camera. So uh, like, and that's, that's me. Like, yeah. that's not even me going like, oh, that's my evil dead two shot. And oh, that's my dress to kill moment. Like, that's just the, my id coming yeah. up with regurgitating this yeah. everything that I, you've consumed. I used to be able to say like, oh, that's my, you know, Miller's crossing shot. Mm-hmm. And that's my, you know, homage to the Hills of Eyes too. Yes. It's a dog flashback. Who gives a shit? Um, now I, I feel like I've gotten to the point where it like, I will use that as a reference point for my crew or my cast so that they can see the reference point. But I don't sit there and just fanboy every moment anymore. I feel like I just kind of do it. Yeah. And I'm, and, and I'm glad that I get to just do it because like, I don't want it to just be um, indicative of other people's work. Now it's like, well, I've proven myself and even just to myself that like, this is what I was born to do guys. Like, like that's why when you did that intro, I was like, I've, been living the dream in one form or oh, another for, yeah. for a little while now. And this is what I was put on this earth to do. Mm. And I could knock on wood. I could die and I could on my deathbed go, 
I did it. And that's something that I've wanted to do since I was three. And then I was 11 when I saw the blob and the remake and, you know, and I've been chasing ever since. And I am just blessed to, to have been able to do that. And now like being able to talk to you guys and be able to have the movie out, like this is all gravy to me because now it's just a matter of being able to have a dialogue with everybody and, and and champion Stewart's work and champion the horror genre and champion, like why we love movies to go on these journeys, you know? So, okay. I will shut up. (laughs) The boo crew will be right back. This is not an advertisement for a new movie. This is a warning. If you are squeamish, if you have nightmares, if you have a weak heart, before you experience Reanimator, think very carefully. H.P. Lovecraft's classic tale of horror, Reanimator, it will scare you to pieces. This motion picture contains scenes of horror that may be considered too intense for anyone under the age of 18. Remember, you've been warned. Casting the film, I mean, what a phenomenal cast, man. We Dude. Bruce Davidson and yeah. Jonathan and, uh, you know, of course, Barbara's a given, right? I mean. Oh, yeah. And then, you know, uh, Judah Lewis is fantastic. Mm-hmm. But I fucking love Judah Lewis, by the way. Underused. Me, underused. Yes, yes. Not, I don't think anymore. Fucking. I, I honestly, that, like, I think that kid, like, I love him to death and yeah. I hope that people go. Oh, he's all grows up now, dude. Yeah, the perform. Uh, sorry to cut you off, Leo, no, but the performance he gives in this, I mean, and the performance he gives in this is just the yeah. best, one of the best I've ever seen. Yeah, one of the standouts for me, man, was Heather Graham. Yeah, because yeah, for man. me, she's always going to be swingers. Yeah, you know, like, like that's where I found her, and I'm like, wow, now she's in a genre movie. It's man. funny how different people have had their Graham yeah. gateway. Mine's Boogie Nights. See, mine was licensed to drive oh fuck i didn't even remember right. she was in Mercedes. that 80s i fucking wow that was my first dude crush. i can't believe i never dude i loved right? license to drive i remember going to the, to the the magazine store and they would put out like a movie magazine and there was a license to drive magazine yeah with when they had the when they had like the picture and shit, books yeah. and yes shit, yes yeah. obsessed and fucking so forgot it's, that it's funny you know Swingers doesn't come up very often. Everyone talks about Boogie Nights and Austin Powers, and I bring up Bowfinger a lot because I love Bowfinger. Um, But not a lot of people bring up Swingers, which is really interesting because that was the first time that I remember rediscovering Heather because at the time it was, it went from the, what is it? A license to drive to drugstore cowboy. She was in drugstore cowboy and she's fantastic in it, but she's unrecognizable. It's kind of like, when you watch your first high school crush go bad yeah. in a way, you're like, oh, no, no, damn it. But she's so good in it. You just yeah. forget. But um, yeah, like uh, Heather is has been in the business so long and she's done almost everything. And that's part of the reason why I was excited. It was actually Barbara who was the one who said, like, what about Heather Graham? Because, you know, we were getting a lot of passes on this. And not because of the material itself, but because at the time, you know, and this is like a year and a half, two years ago, um, you know, sex in the context of cinema was kind of poo-pooed a yeah. little bit, you know, it was, or it was just, um, it was taboo. Moment. Yeah. yeah. It, it, and you know what? Good. 
you know what? The Me Too movement had to fucking happen yeah. because there was way too many shenanigans going on on sets and I've seen it and I, it, it just, it's disgusting. And you know, the, the whole, just the whole idea of consent when you hear crappy stories about movies that you love and you go like, Oh man, really? Like yeah. they, they did, they pulled that shit off or, you know, I, I get why it had to happen and I'm glad it happened. Um, that said, it did put a dent into, you know, or, or actually it kind of created a bit of a drought of sexuality being used in storytelling, right. not just to titillate, but you know, there has to be like a story and, and uh, character component of it. If there isn't consequence, if it's just, you know, cutting to two people's hands on the bed and you know, they they squinch together and then you fade to black or whatever. And then they, they button up and they go, well, I guess we got to get uh, chased by the Terminator again. You know, now that said, that there's a very good reason why those two people had to have sex in the Terminator. Yeah. You know, it's the fucking end of the world and they needed a hero. But in most cases, sex was kind of falling out of fashion in a way in, in the storytelling. So we were getting a lot of passes because of that. And when Heather, no, sorry, when Barbara had said, um, what about Heather Graham? Um, I don't know if you guys remember this, but in Boogie Nights, and I talk about this scene a lot, but, and I hope that people go back to Boogie Nights and watch this because most people think of the first 45 minutes to, to the hour of Boogie Nights where everything's great and Polaroid cameras are being taken out and people are just taking, out, taking off their shirts and taking off all their clothes and just having sex and everything's great. Um, and then the 80s hits and there's a moment in the movie where it's all shot on video mm-hmm. and, uh, and Jack Horner, Burt Reynolds' character is in the limo. And uh, they're sh- they're going to shoot one of those Gonzo porns that he was always like against because he wanted story and character. Now it's just, well, we're just going to have we're going to watch these two people fuck in a limo. And the look that Heather's character gives the camera when she realizes that the person that they just picked up just so happens to be one of her high school friends is one of the most haunting and harrowing things I had ever seen an actor go through because it felt so real. And she's got such expressive eyes that I, that's the thing that, that burrowed into my head when Barbara said, Heather, Heather Graham, I went, Oh my God, if I can harness that moment and not, not particularly that moment, but if I could give this actor the ability to run with a, with a character so fully pardon the pun fleshed out that that they can really have fun not just with one person but like multiple people and with her range and you know in the last couple of years you know she'd mostly been known for romantic comedies and screwball comedies and you know drama but nothing like this so the, the freshness of seeing someone that you haven't seen in a genre film like this kind of open up and break out and and have a fucking blast man that that was so exciting to watch unfold this entire production. Did you talk to her about that scene in Boogie Nights? Oh, God, yeah. What did she say? She was just, well, first off, she said, thank you. And she's like, I'm so glad that you noticed that. And, you know, anytime that you can pull like a deep dive moment for for an actor, you know, like even if it's just like, you know, think of your favorite actor and be like, you remember that scene in the kitchen when you moved your thumb? Holy shit, that was amazing. And then just like, well, thank you. That's exactly what I was intending. Yeah. You know, if you get those moments and dude, same thing for a director. If someone's like, dude, that one shot in that one movie. And you're like, oh, you noticed that? Oh, I like you. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. so you know, I, I know how to break the ice well when it comes to that sort of thing. But I, it came from a real place and wanting to 
you know, work with someone of that caliber, but also someone who wasn't afraid of the sexuality part. And I told her very, very much up front, like the sex, I can't dull it down. It, It is, it's what drives the story. It is what drives these characters. It is a major component of the story. I had meetings with other actors who were like, does it have to have all the sex? Mm-hmm. And, you know, and look, there were some names that would have immediately initiated the the money that they were in, but they didn't want to have the sex. They were just like, can we, you know, we you just fade to black. We'll just insinuate. And I'm like, I can't do that. I like as much as I really want to work with you, like that's not I would be doing a this a disservice if I dulled that down or if I took it out or I, you know, cut away and faded to black. I can't do that. Like and and that's another that was one of those moments where it's like, what would Stuart do? Mm-hmm. He would tell them and the Zoom call. And that's what I did. Yeah. Not not that abruptly. Yeah. I wasn't just like and right. and <laughs> Sorry, Madonna. No, that's not who was in there. Um, but like Heather got it. She got the part. She got the 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 need for the sexuality. Um, and, you know, she has been, um, you know, I, we've never talked in length about like her past experiences in, you know, in other movies on sex scenes. It's not the sort of thing that you just kind of sit at craft service and like, sure. oh, yeah. So, you know, well, what was it like banging that dude? You know, it's like, no, you don't talk about that sort of thing. You, you don't talk about everything but that. Um but Heather, um, we knew, you know, felt comfortable with her body and her sexuality. And I think she was even more empowered with the fact that we weren't hiding that she was, I'm not giving anything away. She's 52 years old and she's gorgeous. She's a gorgeous woman. Oh, yeah. I don't care about her fucking age like that. That's a woman who is absolutely stunning. She looks exact same as <laughs> right? first saw her. Yeah. She's, she's a, a beautiful beautiful woman and inside and out and she was a fantastic collaborator and the fact that we weren't hiding the wrinkles we weren't hiding the lines that's just age man like everybody goes through it like anybody who's like injecting themselves with botox or writing notes to the studio saying like can you cg out my you know my jowls or what have you like that's just part of life you know and and the more that we can embrace that the better and that was part of the thesis of this project was i don't want to say like you know She's 50 going on 30, you know, one of the things that I always joke about and it kind of ties it back to from beyond, but, um, you know, Barbara's character in from beyond is supposed to be a, you know, like this, you know, uh, acclaimed doctor or this like very experienced doctor. This was a year after she played a co-ed in reanimator. And even when I was like 11 years old, I was going, that lady doesn't look old enough to be a doctor. Get out of here. You know? So, you know, that was because we were even getting, you know, these lists when you get lists of casting, you know, we were getting lists that had like Jenna Ortega was in there. I'm like, get the fuck Mm. out of here. I love Jenna. She's not a fucking well-known author, you know, therapist slash author that has written three books that has this, you know, successful practice that makes no sense. You know, it'll, it'll initiate the money. I don't give a fuck because it's not going to be the truth behind the character. Mm. If this means that we don't work with Jenna Ortega or whoever, so be it. You know, it's like, I would love to work with Jenna Ortega. She's fucking amazing. It's not the right. Yeah. Even she would be the first person to say, this doesn't make any sense, yeah. Yeah. but Heather made sense in so many respects. So when she said yes, man, it was so like exciting because like all the possibilities of like all the different characters that she got to embody, man, she was 
like a kid in a candy store. And with Judah, had Judah done anything, uh, not to harp on the sexuality part no, of the no, film, no. but uh, you know, had Judah been through anything like, because I, I love him in the babysitter movies. Yep. Um, Summer of 84. Summer of 84, yeah. yes, yes. And uh, oh, that other one... Um, God, what was the one with the... Uh, I can't... If I well, describe the film, it Christmas gives away... Chronicles. No, there's one that gives away the twist to describe... No, no, don't, I know which one you're talking about. You know about. what don't I'm talking about? Yes. Okay, yeah, 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 yeah. That was a great one, too. I, I don't know why I can't remember the name. But anyway, I don't think he's done anything to that extent before. What was that like? And, and was Heather kind of nurturing him through that process? I mean, that must have been different for him. Our first day of shooting was the love scene where they're in the the uh, Edward and um and Elizabeth are in their bedroom after they just had the nice fish dinner and they're oh. just ha- kind of having boring couple sex yeah. with the ASMR in the background yeah. and everything and then she starts to fantasize about the kid and then all of a sudden uh, we do a Texas switch in the same oh, shot yes. yeah. where Jonathan goes down and then Judah <laughs> pops up yeah. that was all in one shot I had to be the douchey, oh, you know, shit. diva director who's like I got to do it in one shot I, there's got to be no cuts no way so, our first day of shooting is Heather and Jonathan and Judah all in bed together, just kind of hanging out and waiting for me to kind of set up my next shot. And, you know, we had a closed set. So it was just me and the DP in the, sh- uh, in the, in the room who was also operating. Uh, Judah had never done anything like this before. And, you know, I will say that he, he was always a pro and I love that kid to death. I, I, I pray that he becomes my Leonardo DiCaprio, not saying that I'm Scorsese, but like that kind of dynamic Mm -hmm. where I get to work with him over and over and over again. He is a true talent. He elevated everybody just the way that Heather did. And then when you get those two together, they're elevating each other to the point where you're out of the fucking roof, like uh, Willy Wonka. Um, But Judah had never done anything like this before. And he was, you know, very, uh, very rightfully so very nervous about it. He never showed it. We didn't like we would have Friday nights at um, my I had an Airbnb where, you know, I was also kind of cutting the movie and, uh, you know, just play kind of putting dailies together and just kind of assembling shit. And uh, and he would come over every Friday night because we'd watch uh, Last Driving with Joe Bob. And, uh, you know, we get a pizza, get a couple beers and we just shoot the shit. And, you know, he was just such a delight to be around and so inspiring um, but the night before we, you know, started shooting or the weekend before we started shooting, he's like, you know, I really have never done this before. And I'm like, trust me. And, and, you know, I did everything to make the, the, uh, the cast comfortable. I let all their lawyers and all their reps know exactly what I was shooting. I did storyboards to show exactly how much butt crack I was going to show. And, uh, you know, so they walked on set knowing exactly where I was putting the camera at all times, how many shots I was getting. I wasn't going to sneak in a little bit like, I'm just going to put the shot in between your legs. You know, like there was none of that. Like I knew exactly what I needed, how I needed it. And because I'm an editor, I know exactly the coverage that I needed without going like, maybe I'll, maybe I'll just get some spray the room a little bit as they say. Yeah. None of that. So they knew that they could trust me and where I was going to put the camera. And uh, let me just say, man, Judah became a man that day. (laughs) Because like he went from, you know, the kid from the babysitter movies to walking out looked like all that was missing was a fucking cigarette sticking out of his mouth. It was like, I mean, you know, he he made love to Heather Graham now on camera, you know, and and both of them, man, they were I again, not to bring up a Boogie Nights uh, reference, but. The first time that Dirk Diggler has sex on camera with Julianne Moore <laughs> yes. and everyone's just kind of like, it's just these silent shots of everyone going, 
you know, you got Bill Macy's just kind of like looking sideways yeah, yeah, yeah. and uh, like, um, what is it? Uh, John C. Riley is like tilting his head sideways and, and Jack Horner just sitting there smoking his cigar. Like, yes, that's what that, fi- when you can see actors have palpable chemistry, like, like when you sit there and go like, you know, if the cameras weren't here. Right. Yeah. Who things would get pretty hot and <laughs> horny around here, you know, like, but you know, they were being very respectful to each other, total fucking professionals, but, but like, you bought it, you bought but it, you bought it. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, that is as nervous as I knew Judah was, which I would have been, I think anybody would have been in that situation, like terrified. You're, you are showing yourself at your most vulnerable in front of a camera that is ultimately going to distribute these moments around the fucking world. When you break it down like that, that's fucking terrifying. It really is. Like now, you know, these people are in this tiny little bedroom in someone's house in Mississippi. And then ultimately that is going to be shown everywhere. And, you know, I didn't say that at the time because you don't want to freak them out, but that's ultimately what's going to happen. Judah's been around the block. Like he's been in a lot of movies before. So is Heather. So is Jonathan. Everybody has, uh, like it's still very, um, intimidating and it's very, it can make things very awkward. So the more that we made it feel like they were comfortable and that we were joking in a good way, we weren't making jokes, you know, like, like disparaging flesh jokes or whatever. Um, we had to deal with fucking Jonathan Sheck walking around practically naked all day long. Like that is a gorgeous judge. That, that yeah. guy is a perfect specimen <laughs> yeah. of alpha male. Yeah. And what was great though, was that he loved the fact that I told him, I'm like, you're the doting housewife. If this was a film noir, Judah's the femme fatale or the hom fatale. Uh, Heather's the kind of detective character that can you know, get seduced into this world of crime and, and seediness and, you know, and sex. Jonathan's Jonathan's basically playing like Ann Archer in fatal attraction. Yeah. Yeah. You know, he's playing the, you know, the hapless wife that's always there to make everybody happy. And, you know, he loved that. But then at the same time, I was like, just to let you know, um, you know, I'm going to be taking a, you know, a, a I'm going to basically, I fuck you with the camera, you and Judah, because the story is told from Heather's perspective. So why would we be showing copious amounts of female nudity? No, we would be objectifying the males because this is her story. So when you have Uh, Judah on one end as like the twink and you have Jonathan Sheck as the bear, which is the reason why I told him not to shave. And he hated that. He hated the fact that he couldn't shave. He's like, can I shave? I'm like, nope. Nope, you got to be hairy as fuck. We're representing all the hairy guys out there like myself, and we're going to make, we're, we're, we're bringing Harry back. And he's like, okay, fine. But he could not, not take his shirt off every day on set. He'd walk around in his fucking underwear, not making people uncomfortable. He's like, oh, that's just Jonathan again. But like, you sit there and like everybody would just be staring at him going, dear God, man, you are just a perfect piece of flesh. It's, it's fucking amazing. But that's the kind of atmosphere that we fostered on the set was that it was, it was very much a family affair. It was very much everyone's just like having a good time, even though we were all there to work, but having a good time and knowing that we were having fun creating films. I have this tradition that I do on every day of a set that I actually took from a bunch of cosplayers on nights of bed asked because we were just, we had all these LARPers on set and every morning they would, they would go huzzah. And I stole that. So every single morning when we would gather the crew together, I would make the crew go huzzah. And, you know, it's, it's like what Tarantino does where he's like, what do we, you know, what do we like? 
and he'd have the whole crew go making movies. I would do the I same thing. I did not thing. know that. Yeah, every you know, whenever like there would be a lull in the production, or he could tell like there was some tension in the air, he would say that, and the and the crew would say that back. And we should remind ourselves that we are fucking so lucky to make movies. We could be digging ditches, you know. We we can be in a fucking cubicle, and I've done that. We can be you know like doing a job that we don't love, but we're making believe, and we're making stories. And the, and the shit that we do in a tiny little room in Mississippi or in a, in an old morgue in Mississippi is going to be seen around the world. I've traveled around the world with this movie or just like, I know the movie has been around. I've been around the block a little bit with it, but the fact that we get to do something that gets shared to everyone out there, if they, if they want to see it is mind blowing. So we never, we never try to not take advantage. We, we never try to take advantage of that. We're not, not taking advantage of it in the wrong way. But it, it isn't something that we'll never forget. And um, that that's why I'm proud of the movie, man. You should be. Dude, I'm going to let you go, uh, Leo, with a question so I don't hog the mic because I yes, feel like I'm, I'm just, so yeah, yeah, sorry. Blah, blah, blah. No, I no. feel like I'm like blah, blah, blah. No, it's all good, man. I was thinking, uh, you know, special effects in the movie, the, the gore effects oh, are fantastic, so man. Oh, uh, Just, you don't see it coming and when it does, you're like, holy shit. That's great. Good. Uh, like, well, that was the whole point, you know, like yeah. I didn't want it to be. You know, and I know that, you know, some critics have said like, oh, man, it takes a while to get going. See, I like movies that at least I, I hate to use the word slow burn. I like movies that earn these right. violent moments. If you hit them over the head and gr- trust me again, as a kid from the splatter days, you know, you watch a movie like Reanimator. And the first thing you see is some old dude's eyeballs pop out of his fucking skull. Yeah. And you're like, well, I'm in. And then but then next thing you know, you're waiting for the next time that that something like that happens and there was nothing in the story at that moment that justified and we even had notes from producers or whatever um that said like well can we take something from like the middle of the movie or the beginning of the movie could we take the beheading scene and move it to the front just to goose the audience i'm like nope not happening like this is supposed to you have to earn the right to create the violence and create the gore that's going to make it hurt and make it have an effect on the audience. If you do it too early, you're going to blow your wad and then they're just going to be looking for the next gore scene and look through the seams. All of the gore was done by like all the effects. One man, Gregory McDowell. Yep. And he had worked with, um, Stuart on the reanimator, a musical. Um, he had worked with him on a bunch of projects. Uh, and he's this amazing effects artist that came out of Atlanta and, uh, you know, and again, another nerd, like it only took like 10 yeah. minutes of being on a zoom with him. And we're talking about like Prince of darkness and mm. John Carpenter movies and shit like that. And stuff that, you know, like I knew K and B did like, um, uh, K and B did the tales from the dark side of the movie. Yeah. And this was when I knew Greg and I were going to bond because we talked all about the gargoyle from tales from the dark oh, side yeah. of the movie, which I don't know if you guys remember that, but mm. that was a revolutionary uh, makeup design because it made it look like the knees were bent in a certain way that made it look like it had these crazy bow legs, oh, right. but they actually designed it where you just can't see Ray Dong Chong's um, Ray Dong Chong's Ray Don Chong's sounds weird, but you can't see her leg, you know, so it creates a, an illusion of it being longer. And that's the shit we talked about. And I'm like, dude, you and I, that's we park it. our cars in the same garage. Yeah. You are fucking hired. And all of the, you know, all of the effects, um, he, he was a one man band and you know, everything from all the gore that happens later on to, you know, the, um, the infamous severed head that you see, um, on the cover of Fangoria, Fangoria which, man. which is a little bit, oh man, that's a whole story. <laughs> so amazing. Yeah. The fact that 
the that shot, the one where he holds the head up, that was originally that was inspired by a cover of Fangoria magazine from 1986. No shit, oh. the best of Fangoria. Um, I, I think it's issue 12. Um, but it's a shot of Herbert West holding up Dr. Hill's head from reanimator oh, yeah. that exact frame. And that has always burrowed into my head because they ended up using it for the laser disc of reanimator years right. later, about 10 years later, they used that like an illustration version of it. And that, that, that wide lens kind of look where everything's in focus, where everything seems a little distorted that always just stuck with me. I use that in that, that like that idea in other movies just like like that wide lens kind of shot and when i read the script the first time i went oh there's my reanimator moment i have to fucking do that yeah. like i have to and i know exactly how i'm going to shoot it found that cover drew a storyboard that looks exactly like that cover brought it to set showed them that showed them that, you know we need a i think it was an 18 millimeter lens that was going to give us that look shot it and then eight months later i get a call from phil nobile from fangoria going um you know because we were originally going to do a photo shoot and it was going to be we were going to recreate that shot and ultimately because of the strike we couldn't do it so we ended up using a still from the movie but the fact that it went from a cover of fangoria right. to a still from my movie back to a cover from yeah. on fangoria yeah. now Dude, like that's the sort of shit that I wish I had a DeLorean and can go back in time and, and tell, tell yourself, myself. Yeah, right. And then, you know, my young self would be like, who are you, old man? Where did you get the car? Exactly. You know? But they, like, that's the sort of shit that I get so excited about. And Greg made that head so great that I had to fight Bruce from stealing that head. Like he was like, oh, come on. Can I take it home? I'm like, I don't want to know what you're going to do with that head, Bruce. Like, get out of here with that. Like everybody was fighting for that head. Um, but it was so, it was so well done. Where know? is it now? Where is it? I don't know, but maybe it needs to find a permanent home somewhere. <laughs> oh, Winkity wink wink. Oh, oh, oh. It's the first thing I thought of when I came oh in here. I'm God. like, I think I know a good place oh, for the head. Dude, that would be incredible. I might, I might have to fight Barbara Crampton for it. But um, but yeah, Greg McDougal did all the effects and and again, like, you know, and I I just came off of Creep Show when I worked with K and B. Yeah. And oh. you know, and again, I'm a huge effects nerd. So like all those guys between, you know, the K and B guys and Rob Botine and Steve Johnson and Greg Canham and, you know, and obviously Rick Baker, you know, all these guys were my fucking heroes. Savini, of course. Uh, so to work with all the K and B guys yeah. was a what dream. A fucking trip, and of course man. the first person I called when I got the job, I'm like, Greg, hey, yeah. hey, you know, um, you know, I did do four episodes of Creep Show for you. Think you can maybe help me out, Greg? Greg, you there? <laughs> Greg, wait, is he still there? <laughs> Shit, he's gone. Um, so, and, and it was just a budget thing. They like there can be has a as a very particular overhead when it comes to budget, you know. And I, I can only call in so many favors. Sure, but because um, again, because of Stuart Gordon, and we knew that Stuart, I think it was through Joe Begas had uh, hooked us up with his name because Joe worked with, um, with Greg and Stuart on the reanimator musical. And one thing led to another one phone call in and Greg was like, whatever you need, I'll do it because of Stuart. Yeah. Speaking of Begus, yeah. Steve Moore on this composing <sighs> dude, how the fuck did you make it sound of the world of reanimator yeah. of from beyond and still be able to give it your own twist and right. go like because he gets to go 
so he gets to have those moments, those Stuart Gordon moments where he almost like boombastic. Yeah. And then he falls into that like 80s Skinamax uh, yeah. thriller man. sexy stuff. It, it It is so perfectly done. Did you give him anything, any reference or how involved were you in sitting with him or did you just fucking see what he did and go, holy okay. shit. So this is a great story and I'm sorry in advance because the, 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 this is one of my favorite stories of the movie. So, uh, you know, I had worked with Steve Moore because uh, Joe Begas's um, best friend, Josh Ethier, cut Mayhem. And I would, by the way, Ethier, one of my favorite, he's a rock star editor. Yes. yes. I love everything he's edited. He's he's amazing. And I wish we got him on this, but unfortunately we couldn't, you know, he was busy on, I think he was working on orphan at the time. And Josh, Josh and Joe and I are really close and I love those guys. And, you know, I was originally in for, for mayhem. It was going to be my regular composer, bear McCreary. And because also fabulous, amazing. I'm just, I'm so blessed with these fucking cool people that I get to work with. But, um, bear was busy and, um, and and, and, yeah, I mean, yeah, he was a little bit, he's a little busy, you know, he's got, got got some projects. Um, and Joe and Josh were like, you got to work with Steve Moore. And I was a huge fan of zombie. I still am. His, his band zombie is a two man synthwave um, band. And, uh, and I've seen him live before and I was a huge fan. I'm like, well, that kind of makes sense for mayhem. It made sense because I wanted to have it like an electronica kind of synth wave score made sense. And it, and he was great. And we had such a great collaboration on that. It was one of my favorite collaborations on that film was working with Steve Moore. And one of the things that you do that happens when you work with people uh, is that they're always, you know, and, and I do it too, is where like, so what are you doing next with that little wink in your eye? Like, what are you doing next with me? And, you know, I, I knew I've known Steve for years since mayhem and we'd become really, you know, friendly. And, um, you know, anytime he would come into town with zombie, I would go see them. Of course I would be asking for a comp ticket. So I kind of, I, I owed him like an update on what's going on in my life. So, um, Becca had never seen, uh, them before. So we went to go see it, uh, see them. And right before the show, we went out back and Steve's like, oh, I want to go smoke a joint. I'm like, okay, cool. So we go outside and he goes, so what are you doing next? And I'm like, fuck, I got to answer this question. Shit. Because no offense to Steve, but I knew watching, you know, like watching all the movies that we watched um, that were like film noir and the kind of look and feel that I wanted with this it didn't really necessitate a synth wave or an electronic kind of score. Sure. I wanted... Elmer Bernstein. I wanted yeah. Jerry Goldsmith. I wanted Pino Donaggio. I wanted an orchestra, even if it was going to come from nowhere. Now, I don't think I've ever told this before, but originally we were going to go with Richard band. Oh shit. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Which I had conversations with Richard. It made sense. And in the end, ah, I, I, there was something about the situation that just didn't feel right. You know, and this is no offense to Richard at all. He's so, so amazing. But there was, I don't know, there was, I didn't have that, that like, fuck yeah moment. I don't know what it was. And so I, I, not that I strung Richard along, but I was like, you know what? I'm just going to, I'm going to possibly work, let let that work. Cause you know, Richard's work on reanimator was so iconic, but at the same time, it's so indicative of like the work that, uh, you know, was in, um, Leonard Bernstein or whatever from psycho, Yeah, you know, oh yeah, very, very close to that. And, you know, I had heard some of Richard's later works and everything. And I was just like, I don't know if even just from a resource standpoint, could he be able to pull off what I wanted to do? Right. Um, 
so you know I, plus I was, it's also it's a little close to the you, you know what i mean like yeah you want to do something that's that's fresh in your own as exactly well, that in all respect in, right in one in one form i didn't want to just go i'm just gonna bring everybody together and just like let them do their thing and i'm just gonna take credit for it or what have you i i, I wanted to be have a few things that were my own and the music was a major component of that so I'm outside, Steve's smoking a joint, and he's like, what are we doing next? And I'm like, well, I got this Lovecraft movie. Lovecraft, holy shit, tell me more. And I told him the story, and and I'm like almost reluctantly saying it. I'm trying to actually pitch him out of it, because I'm like, I don't think you're right for it, dude. And I felt terrible, because he's a good friend of mine, yeah. and, and I loved working with him. And he you know, he was like, I'm in, I'm, I want to do it. I'm like, shit. Like, <laughs> okay, well, you know what? Put a pin in it and we'll get back to you when uh, we're in the edit. And, and you're like, I'm never going to talk to him again. And, and, and I thought either he's never going to talk to me again or I'm going to have to do, like just kind of skirt it every time. Or if I see him at a party, I'm going to have to run the other way or whatever. And, um, you know, and but the, you know what? God bless that man, because he just could. He would not leave me alone. Not in a bad way. But he, he kept saying, like, I can do this because I told him what my influences were, yeah. what uh, what the kind of movie that I wanted to make yeah. and the kind of sound I wanted. And he's like, I can do it. I can do it. I trust me. I can do it. And one day, um, and this was when we had gotten the cut to a pretty good place. And I don't know about you guys, but one of the things that I hate more than anything about the editing process is, uh, the temp score because, um, uh, and it's, it's, it's tough because you, you're, you're searching far and wide for these feelings that you are, that are done from other movies that maybe you have an idea. Like Josh Ethier is one of those guys that knows like, Track seven, the grudge. It's going to sound fucking awesome. Trust me. Like that was actually a really good job. That was, that was good. Um, But he knows music so well. And he's such a good sound designer too, that like when you work with him, he can find the perfect music and make your temp score sound amazing and not even make you go like, dude, you use the, you use the soundtrack from jaws again. You know, it's like, you can't do that. And that's a big no, no for all you filmmakers out there. Do not put music. That is like, don't put anything from John Carpenter in your movie. Because someone is going to go, Oh, that's now it's Halloween. Now I wish I was watching Halloween. Right. So you, you, you have to stay away from that. Um, so we toiled for a long time. My editor and I, like we really kind of kicked the shit out of the, the movie and gave it like seven or eight different iterations because we went from like only using things from insidious and Oculus and the grudge to only using things from blowout and, and like all the Pino Dinaggio and all the Elmer Bernstein stuff. And we we, it was an organic process to find that sound that we were looking for. Something that was indicative of those older films, but also something that felt a little bit like those erotic thrillers of the eighties and nineties. The sexy sax comes in later. So, at that point, even just to shut the shut Steve the fuck up, I went, Steve, I'm going to send you the cut. And he's like, Yeah, fuck yeah, let's do this. So I send him the cut. And he writes back and he goes, I've got this. And I'm like, do you though? Do you really? Are you sure? He goes, just trust me. And he sent me two or three demos. And there were these, and they are in the movie, as is. There are these gorgeous orchestral moments that, because one of the things that I wanted to do, and I feel like it's a dying art in music, is um, character themes. Mm. No one really has character themes a lot anymore. And I thought, here is a perfect opportunity to not just give each character a theme, but when they body swap, their themes swap as well. 
So now you have these weird mutation, these Cronenbergian mutations of the each each of the characters' themes, and now that because they're embodied in other characters, now they sound almost completely different, but they still have that sound. So Elizabeth Derby, for example, has a piano theme, and when you hear when she changes and you hear that theme, but when the entities in her body, it's kind of warped, it's kind of weird, it's kind of funky, and that was something that I had I wanted to do that. And, you know, I'm giving all I'm Steve giving Steve all these notes and everything. He's like, I got this. I got this. I got this. I'm like, all right, pal. All right, let's see. Then he sends me those cues. And I went, God damn it. He had it. He got it. He totally fucking got it. Nice. And now Steve and I have this working relationship where, you know, we did everything on Zoom. I didn't meet Steve Moore in person until the Fantasia premiere of Mayhem. We did everything over email oh, and phone. That's incredible. Never, and we're in the same room together at once. So that gave me the confidence to say, all right, well, we can do this again, you know, like over Zoom, over emails and stuff like that, over text. And we spotted the, the movie and we, so we, we spotted the movie and he did the entire score. Every single note of that movie is all done by Steve Moore. Wow. Not one other person did anything else on that. Everything from all the strings to the pianos, to the flutes, to the sexy sax, all of that was done by one man. That's another one man army. And that entire score was done by Steve. Unbelievable. It sounds huge. It sounds huge. It sounds like a 30 piece orchestra. We even had another composer in contention who said like, I have a, you know, an entire orchestra in Prague that is waiting to go. And I was like, maybe that's the right choice. But then Steve blew me away and he did the entire score from Thanksgiving to Christmas last year. Like, like we were done in post and That's everything crazy. and he did it in essentially six weeks Yeah, and I was blown away. So we put it in the movie and then, and sexy sax comes in. Now I know that Steve isn't a fantastic saxophone player. I've seen him do it live and being a big Lost Boys Tim Capello fan myself, you know, where I still believe, who is one of the few people that my mom ever said, Joey, I'm just telling you right now, I will only have sex with two other people other than your men, than, than your father. And it's the sexy sax guy from Lost Boys and Prince. And I'm like, well, that is a wide swath of masculinity right there i'm in, i'm very impressed mom your, your spectrum is wide and, and possibly so were your legs um but when, you know i knew that sexy sax was part of the language of the films that we were trying to evoke and it was kind of something that had not been used a lot yeah. lately yeah oh yeah so i i knew steve played sax when we would do the zoom calls i'd see it in the corner sitting there really lonely and dusty and i go steve what if we did sexy sax? He goes, fuck yes. <laughs> oh my God. You're, are you kidding? I'm like, no, no, I'm like, let's just try it out. He goes, all right, I got to go. Bye. And he cut off the, the call. And then six hours later, he sends me the, the first cue, the, the scene that you know, they're in bed together. And I'm like, oh my God, sexy sax is fucking back. And, uh, and I, and I, I embraced it and I'm like, we got to put sexy sacks everywhere. It felt right. Yeah. Like anytime there was a sex scene, yeah. not some weird violent moment. You're like, bruh, 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 it would have been weird. Um, and then we showed it to the producers and we played, we played it back for the producers. And I, I will say this, um, never before have I ever not gotten notes on music just happens, you know, either they want to feel like they're included and they just want to justify their jobs in one form or another 
or they have legitimate reason to have a note. Um, the only note that they came back with was half of them. Two of the producers were like, no sexy sax. That no. feels weird. Now, part of the reason, and to be fair, and I totally got their point, when you're using uh, tools and instruments and, uh, you know, certain devices in filmmaking storytelling, um, you know, things like zooms, right? Zooms were not used in movies for a good 15 years. And now it seems like, you know, in a retro sort of way, you're starting to see more zooms in movies. You know, at first it was kind of like a gimmick sort of thing, but now people just use them more. But in the seventies, the sixties and seventies, they're doing snap zooms all over the place. So they're doing entire scenes like a Sergio, a Sergio Corbucci, a Western where they're doing entire shots and scenes and using a zoom that doesn't, it wasn't used for a while. Now it's back in the language, sexy sax saxophone, in the the score had not been used in a long fucking time so it felt very foreign to their ears and it took myself steve of course because he was very protective about his sexy sax and so was i and one of our other producers joe wicker um who was the line producer the three of us were like i'm telling you give it a shot like it might sound foreign now but in a year from now when everyone's talking about the sexy sax Like, and, and now other filmmakers are putting it back in, like we're starting a sexy sex revolution, you know? And they're like, and finally they were like, fine. And it wasn't until the premiere at Tribeca that, uh, one of the, uh, one of the producers that was vehemently against it, Barbara Crampton, uh, like, and you know what? And, and God bless her, you know, like she had all the right in the world to say, it doesn't feel right to me guys. Like, and she was always my biggest champion. That was one of the few times that she pushed back. And then it was at Tribeca when we showed the movie and afterwards she goes, yeah, sexy sex is good. It was good. But again, that was all Steve Moore and us working together was a fucking dream on this. Dude, I love those moments because that's what gets the synapses going. When you hear something that you're, you're not expecting this. And, and I got to say also that his approach to the music and what you're doing with, um, the architecture of the shots and the mechanics of the camera, like you said, those split diopter shots and this lot of split screens and the crazy fades and the going into a circle. I don't know what that's called exactly, but it feels like I'm reading an EC comic come to life. Oh, you and got dude, that shit, dude. dude at the, at the, at, there's a moment at the end where the dialogue sounds like it's torn off the end of an EC comic story, yeah. like a morality tale. Yeah. You know, I was like, oh my God, I'm reading an EC comic up in the cabin when I was a kid again. I it really invoked that. I grew up less. I grew up less with the comic um, because the comic was just not available uh, in most of the comic stores that I went to. But I grew up watching the Tales from the Tales from the sure. show. Yes, and that show was so important to me. Every Friday night on HBO at ten o'clock, when that show would come on, the rest of the world went away because yeah. it was. Very, I always felt like that that show was um, very much a byproduct of the splatter era, where they could use that black humor. That was very much derivative of the comic itself, but there was a license to be able to have big time movie directors having fun yeah. and having tongue in cheek kind of black humor with horribly like detailed gore and sex and, and kind of push the limits and push the boundaries of what you can get away with on cable yeah, TV to play too. to just play. But that kind of 
sense of humor was something that I just always grew up with. And that was something that I always um, kind of uh, like got attracted to. So like you're, you're seeing the EC comics kind of uh, sensibility in this makes my heart swell because that's where it all came from. Not all of it, but that, you know, the ability that tales from the crypt, both, you know, uh, like on the show, but also in the comic, um, a lot of that came from just me knowing that I could get away with those kind of uh, stylistic flourishes. Yeah, you know, I'm yeah. glad you picked up on that, oh. man. That's awesome. Leo, I'll let you take this next one. Lauren's texting me, so I'm going to text her back while you, while you go. <laughs> so the, the sex scenes aside, like what was the toughest day on the shoot? Like what was the most challenging scene to, uh, to execute? Um, who, who, had the, who had it the toughest? Uh, wow. Um, because I, I only say wow because it's like total PST, PTSD. Oh, it was our last day. It was oh, our really? last day on shoot. Um, we had 19 days to shoot the film. Um, see, I recall 18 days, but my producers like to tell me, no, 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 it was 19 days. And I'm like, oh, maybe you're right. I, it was all a blur. It was honestly, it was the lowest budget I'd ever worked with on a film. It was the smallest, it was the, sh- the, the tightest production schedule I'd yeah. ever had. But I had just done, uh, episodes of creep show, which are shot on, you know, three days at right. most. And when you get into that mindset and that workflow, um, you can pull off eight to 10 pages a day, you know, now what gets sacrificed is, you know, a lot of takes, maybe more coverage. So you have to be really crafty with that shit. Um, for me, the, the, the reason why the last day was the toughest was for multiple reasons. Um, one was, you know, when, whenever you're on a, uh, on a shoot, uh, things will always get dropped or things will always get pushed. Yeah. And, you know, and as, as diligent as I was, as, you know, as professional and, and as much as I tried to, you know, make my day, make my schedule, there were always little things that always have to get picked up. And sometimes they get, you know, get pushed and pushed and pushed and then, you know, ends up being the last day or, you know, for one reason or another, like, you know, things that were originally on the schedule for two days get turned into one day. Why? Because the weather was bad and we ended up starting two to three hours later than we were supposed to on day 16. And that means that we just lost that two to three hours and then it all compiles and it becomes a game of math. And next thing you know, your two day big extravaganza moment that was going to have all this fucking great coverage and all these cool effects you were going to give you everybody the time to be able to get everything that they needed and give the effects guy, you know, three or four takes gone, gone. That time is gone. You can't get it back. The actors have to leave on, on Saturday. You lose the location on Saturday. Film has to wrap. And now I'll be the first person to tell you, like I'm, I try to be as responsible a filmmaker as possible. I know the money. I've been a producer before. I know that the money you, you, Gone are the days where you go like, oh, we didn't make our day. Guess we're coming back tomorrow, guys. And how many days are you over? Uh, 45. You know, like th- those those <laughs> days are gone. They used to be there, but that doesn't happen anymore. People have to be financially responsible to the financiers and the people that gave you the money. You have to you have to pay it back by being responsible with their money because it's not yours. And I I can safely say that I made every one of my days because of that responsibility, even if it meant sacrificing certain shots, you know, and, and, and playing ball. I told the producers up front on that, like those final two days leading up to that final day on day, eight, day 19, 
I said, I'm just telling you right now, I've been a good boy. We're going over tonight. Just telling you right now, I don't care how long it is. Do not come up to me and tell me and click your watch or whatever, because we won't have an ending. That's it. And, you know, and whether it was my first AD Kim who designed it that way, because like, you know, it's not like we could drop cable and walk away. You just don't have an ending. And, you know, being that I was trying to be as responsible as possible, I just kindly said to them, give me the fucking space. And they did. Honestly, they did. They were like, they were very respectful to that. Um, everything that could have gone wrong on that day did. Um, everything from uh, an extra that was supposed to be one of the other orderlies with Jonah Ray uh, showed up and he was about four feet shorter than Jonah, which meant that I had to play the fucking. Oh, part. yeah. <laughs> the reason why I have that mustache is because I have this tra- another dumb tradition where I shave my beard on the last day. So I have a porn stash oh. so that when I step on set, everyone goes, hey, hey porn stash. And everyone gets a kind of a guess. Sure. Out of it. It's like just a little more fun goosing to, you know, to kind of keep everybody going so right. that they don't go like, I fucking hate you, director. They go like, eh, he's funny. <laughs> exactly. Um, so I did not. I was not supposed to be in the movie. And then this guy shows up. He's like, hey, everybody, I'm supposed to be in the movie. And I'm like, fuck, he's three foot two. That's not true. Uh, but it's pretty close. When you stand next to Jonah Ray, who's like eight foot seven, yeah. like you go, oh, now all of my cool symmetry shots are out the door. So I now had to play the part. I run to costumes. I'm like, do you have another orderly costume? And now I'm directing and acting sometimes in the same shot. And that was a fucking nightmare, but it had to be done. And uh, another thing that Jonah did, that son of a bitch was, and he's just the sweetest guy in the whole world. And I I love him to death. He went out to kind of bolster up the crew. He went out and found um, a convenience store and bought everybody ice cream and brought the ice cream back. And unfortunately, Barbara ate something. And I guess she's lactose intolerant. And then she got really sick. So that final scene when she's doing the whole, you know, fighting and all that shit, she is about to throw up. No way. At all oh, times. No. She practically passed out at one point when she's shaking around and everything during during one of the transference scenes. She was always she never had a moment where she actually did the the body swap until that moment. And of course it had to be the moment that she's like I feel like I'm going to die. And I'm like, okay, Barbara. So now you have to lay on the ground and writhe and shake. Oh my God. For 20 minutes, because I have to get all this coverage. It was a fucking nightmare of a day. Uh, and, and not only that, but I had to cut half of my shots. I had to use every single inch of whatever we shot to make that scene work. There's a shot. Um, are you guys familiar with the steady cam at all? Mm-hmm. Yes. So yeah. when you use a steady cam, when you go dormant on the steady cam, like when you want to take a break, what you do is you like the, the steady cam operator who's got this like big gimbal. Remember aliens? Yeah. Remember like the gimbal the big, that big the guy thing. Yeah, that's that's a converted steady cam. Oh, no way. Yeah. You'll never look at it the same way again. But it's so it's got this like, you know, kind of weird robotic arm that you put the camera on. And whenever you want to take a break and it was our DP, who was also the camera operator and the steady cam operator. Um, he would flip it around and just take a break. This poor guy who just thought he was going to have a fun final day. And when I told him, you're going to have to get the steady cam out because we don't have any time for fancy shots. I have to literally run and gun this entire final scene. And it was heartbreaking, but I was also like, got to get it done, man. Like you, you got a responsibility and you got to fucking make it work. So, and I'm talking to myself and Dave Matthews, not that Dave Matthews, our DP. Um, he hates ants marching. Uh, he was like, all right, man, let's fucking do it. Let's just get the, get the study cam up and let's do it. Um, 
And uh, so he flipped the camera around between takes just to give his his back uh, a rest. And when there, there's a moment in the movie that I'm so proud of because like it to me, if I didn't say anything, someone would go, wham, what a what a flourish. But there's a moment when uh, Heather is in the hallway and um, this is like after a pivotal moment in the film and the camera is upside down and then it flips around again when, just when she flips her hair up and she pulls the gun on someone, right? That was just the camera operator. That was our DP. The, the Turn, iconic shot that's yeah. turned oh, into all the press yeah. pictures? No, no, not that, that one. Okay, okay. The one right before, it's this upside down shot and it spins oh, around yeah, and yeah, she yeah, flips yeah, her yeah. hair up? Yeah. Yes. That was my DP just turning on the camera and flipping the camera around to be ready to shoot. And Heather just happened to flip her hair oh, back that is and, cool. give, and give that evil look. Yeah. And my editor was like, that's a cool fucking shot. I'm like, whatever it is, we need it because we need to tell the story. And all my cool fucking funky De Palma shots are out the door. So whatever you got, we got to use it. I mean, necessity breeds invention. And like, even when it comes down to using shots that weren't even supposed to be shots, that was footage that was taken before we shot, you know? So that was the absolute hardest day on the set. Um, And every day was hard just because, you know, we just had no time. We had a crew that, you know, was good, but you know, it's still, there was a local crew. We had some people that, you know, might not have been up to snuff, um, which is no detriment to them, but you know, like it's just, it's one of those things that happens when you think that you're going to be like, Oh, I'm saving so much money because I'm shooting out of town. The problem is, is that you don't have people that are like fucking on it. When you shoot something in Los Angeles, you have people that can pull focus like with their eyes closed because they, they have a like years of knowledge and experience when, when you have a local crew and God bless them, but they don't have that experience. And when you're moving as fast as we had to move, I didn't, I couldn't afford to give another take because it was a little bit out of focus because the focus puller just wasn't on his a game and sweet guy. But I have a, an entire montage that my editor made of all the times that I would go focus, right? You know, because here's a moment where it's like Heather Graham is giving her fucking everything. And the focus is soft. I had to use, there's a good 20% of the movie that's out of focus a little bit. Um, but then you, then I would watch like uh, Michael Mann's heat. And if you watch that movie, 20% of that movie is fucking out of focus. Yeah. You know, yeah. be, sometimes you have to just go. If, if the truth is in the moment in the performance, sometimes you have to look past the little yeah. flaws, yeah. you know, and just kind of let the movie be its own thing. Um, but you know, that's just, that's part of the process. So so anyway, so that was the hardest day, and, and and that was the hardest day of a lot yeah. of hard days, but it was worth it. I'm so bummed, but my uh, kids are asking me to put them to bed. Yes. Oh, <laughs> dude, sucks. I, I have dude. I have wasted so much of no, your no, time. No, no, no. I have so many more fucking oh, questions. That's why I'm bummed, but... Don't worry. Also... I'm telling you right now, have me back fucking right, on so well, I can come please. back to the house. Also, though, I love leaving a lot of this shit... For the people to discover too yeah. on their own, right? And that's—I mean, seriously, there's stuff that we have not talked about that I wish we could, but you got to find that out for yourself, and you're going to see it, right? October 27th on VOD and in theaters. Try and get yourself to a theater. One more question, sure. Did you put jo- Judah in a fucking Faith No More T-shirt? Yes, I did, dude. 
Nice. My favorite band of all time. All right. Ever I'll, since Angel Dust, man. Oh, that's it, my favorite album. Really, it's that is my incredible. favorite album of all time. And before you put your kids to bed, you're going to love this fucking story. Tell me. So I'm as big a Faith No More fan as it comes. Angel Dust changed my life. That album, just the fact that the, the, here's this metal band that put a fucking, what, a, a, a stork on their fucking yeah. cover, you know, yeah. that beautiful, like, blue and black image and they went from this wacky kind of more you know more uh like the long hair and the shaved underneath to that, like wearing that suits with bone. like yeah, yeah that now fishbone look and yeah. then then my the side locks his hair yeah and you're like wait he's got short hair and he's doing metal like what the fuck is exactly. going on here favorite band oh. of all time oh. favorite band so um i had been stalking them uh through social media for years billy gould i would just like try to get his attention their manager i tried to get their attention Fun fact, uh, Mike Patton and I became somewhat friendly for a while, no and way. he was going to score Wrong Turn 2. No fucking way. Yep. Oh, my he, God. He was in. He was ready to go. And then uh, P- the Peeping Tom album came out, yeah. and he had to go on tour. And that and that's how we lost him. And he was like, I'm really sorry, because they had just done uh, Crank 2. And yeah, I was that's like, right. Fuck, you started yeah, scoring just, stuff. I was so excited to finally oh work with Mike, because I was supposed to direct uh, um, uh, a video for, do you remember Phantomas? Yeah, like oh, yeah. The, yeah. So Phantomas had uh, an album called The Director's Cut. Yeah, and yeah, I doing had, movie themes and stuff. Yeah. yeah, and there was a song called Henry Portier, a serial yes. of a serial killer. Yes. yes, I was going to direct the video of that, where Michael Rooker was going to be in the video. No, and we were going to recreate shots and scenes of Henry. But here's the here's the the fun part. When you know, like that famous shot of the mirror, yes, where, like yeah. where Henry's yes. like looking at himself, yeah. yeah, you'd see Mike's face come into the side and whisper to him like the lyrics, which no. was basically saying, Kill them all, yeah. And the reason why it didn't happen was 9 11, like we were gonna shoot on 9 11, oh, and then that just fell apart, yeah. So, long, 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 long story short, I had been stalking them and wanting to do a music video for them for decades. It was my dream, it was, it's up there with like doing a Stephen King adaptation. I needed to do a Faith No More music video, so. Uh, I somehow got in touch with them. They finally got, they got back to me when their Sol Invictus album came out out of the blue and said, do you want to do a music video? I'm like, finally, holy shit. The ship has come in. (laughs) And it's like the one video they aren't in. (laughs) And they go, here's the thing. The band's in Brazil and we only have 5,000 bucks. Can you do it? How could I say no? Yeah, of course. Could, so, and, and I'm sitting there going, and I'm listening to the song over and over again. I'm going, how the fuck am I going to do this? And I went, old people taking drugs, done, go, sold. What? So you came up with the whole concept. Oh, of course. Oh, oh. Shot it, and and I thought, oh, fuck, man. Like, like are, the, is, are the fans not going to like it? Are they not going to like it? So they told me, they go, come to Jimmy Kimmel Live, where we're, we're performing that night, and just show us the video on the laptop. I'm like, oh God, the worst opportunity oh, possible. Wow. We're about to go live. Yeah. I got to show them on a laptop. I open it up, I show it to them in the green room, and I thought I was going to get like tons of notes. They go, this is one of our favorite videos of all time. Both Mike and and Billy were, because they're the ones who really shepherd like the visual sure. style of the show, yeah. of their of the band. No notes. And they go, well, and then later, oh, oh, do you want to come to a show? We're playing at the Troubadour tonight. And I'm like, fuck, yes, I do. So we had become just like, like really close. So, and you'll appreciate this, uh, cut to me in Serbia about to shoot mayhem. And there's a scene in the, in the film where there's a big fight between, uh, like between Derek and Melanie, Steven and Samara's character and the accounting team. Right. And, uh, 
And in the script, it was that Melanie puts on some headphones and turns on some dark electronica while they fight. And I'm like, no, that's not going to happen. I've always wanted to do a scene in a movie where someone literally stops a song, like stops a fight and goes, hold on a second. I'm going to put a song on for this shit. I've always wanted to see that in a movie. And I'm like, here's an opportunity where I get to do that. But what song? What, what song could I get? I'm no joke. It's three o'clock in the morning. I'm in Serbia in my underwear and I put on, I have like all these metal playlists and I just start going through songs left and right, just trying to find anything like the closest thing that I could have found that would have fit was a song off of um, Around the Fur of the uh, Deftones. Oh yeah, doubt. And one of my favorite albums of theirs. Yes. And then Motherfucker comes on from Faith No More. And it was like a fucking light bulb went off and I went, that's the song. Oh my God, that's the song. Oh my God, I can see the whole fight happening. It all came together in that one moment. It all solidified right there. And then I went, wait a second, hold on. I got my phone. I texted the the manager, Bob, and just went, hey, so uh, LOL, OMG, blah, 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 (laughs) emojis, how you doing? And then I explained to him, like, look, we have no money. We have no time like i I can't sit through uh, you know eight months of release forms and shit like that but i have this idea and i have this scene that needs a song is there any way that i could get motherfucker like you know for cheap or whatever you know just to use in the movie because i wanted to choreograph that scene to a song i wanted to make it like a like a, a musical in a way yeah and within 20 minutes he writes me back and says joe because you did that music video for us for no money, you didn't take a paycheck, you didn't, you know, you made it for $5,000, you killed it, you can have the song for free. Now to have your favorite band of all time do that, and that's my, you know, like that, that song is in the movie because of Angel Dust affecting my life back in 1991, and, you know, and those are the things that, that's the reason why I love making movies is having those moments, having moments from my childhood find their way back into my life and make me so passionate about why I made those choices. Yeah. But that said, you have kids to put to bed. I do, but I was going to ask you if you're a Bungle fan as well. Oh my God, of course. Fucking love Bungle. Did you you see that video that came out a couple months ago where uh, Mike tried to fight a drone? No. Oh, you have to look it up. It's amazing. Oh, Someone did a drone at one of those outdoor festivals that was like, oh shit, I'm like so, while he was on stage? While he was on stage, a drone comes up and they even have the footage and Mike goes like, come here, come here, come here. And he takes a swing at it. Oh God, I oh, wish would have connected. Awesome. It was amazing. I mean, Mike, I, I, I feel for Mike. I know that he's gone through some hard times and it, it fucking breaks my heart. But at the same time, like that man has changed so many people's lives. Oh yeah. His voice. Oh yeah. His vision. He changed, he changed music. Like I, I swear he's yeah. changed music. That whole band has been so it's just like movies like where we say, um, you know, we age the art doesn't age, but we age yeah. and that Angel Dust album has been in my life and has seen me through uh, light and dark, mm. thick and thin, and it's never changed, but it's always changed its resonance for me. And yes. If I can ever make a movie or some kind of art that does that for someone, it was kind of all worth it. And that's how we become immortal. That's how we become timeless is if we can bring out our best selves and sometimes our worst selves, put it all on screen, put it on a track, make it some, make something that comes purely from the heart. You're going to have someone out there that is going to say 
that changed my life and that helped me and that made, you know, made a difference in my life. And if those movies or music or whatever can traverse over time, if there's one movie that I can make that like just kind of survives the, the fucking apocalypse or whatever, and is in someone's dusty bin, you know, in like hardware or Mad Max or whatever, then I'll live forever. And then, then it's all worth it. What a way to go out, man. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Fuck. Yeah. Oh man. Okay. Well, you got to come back and you listening. Got to check out suitable flesh. Yes. After all this, come on, come on. Yeah. You can't miss it. <laughs> all right. October 27th in theaters, VOD Joe, man. What a pleasure guys. Yes. This was I, like, seriously, so this was a long time coming as a fan of the show. I'm thrilled that I can actually see how the oh, fucking yeah. sausage is made. And uh, anytime you want me back, even just to shoot the shit, I don't have to promote anything. Just just have me in the fucking background. I'll be like fucking Jackie the Joke Man. Dude, what just a pleasure that would make, be, man. Making shit honor. up as I go along. I love you guys, and this has been oh, such a pleasure. You, this is easily one of my favorite. I know everyone's right. easily one of my favorite <laughs> interviews I've ever done, but this is this is why I do it, is to hang out with you fucking assholes. Oh, you know? so, dude, yes. likewise, man. This is everything to us. Yes. All right, Joe. We'll, we'll, we'll get you off and running. We've over two hours here. This is an epic show. Oh, my God. Thank you for listening and sticking around. All right, Joe, you'll come back. You got it. That was your Brew Crew Podcast, episode 406. Special thanks to the incredible Joe Lynch. Time of release, suitable flesh in theaters and on VOD right now. Production tracks for this one provided by the great folks at Power Man 5000. Till next time, this is Trev on behalf of Lauren and Leo and myself. We are the Brew Crew saying sweet screams and... Happy Halloween, but isn't it always? Thanks for listening to another episode of the Boo Crew Podcast. Haunt the Boo Crew at TalesFromTheBooCrew.com. Tales from the Boo Crew on Facebook and Instagram. Follow us on Twitter at TalesFromTheBoo. The Boo Crew is Lauren and Trevor Shand and Leone D'Antonio. The Boo Crew is produced by Lauren Shand, chopped and sliced by Trevor Shand. The Boo Crew is a TSP creation, part of the bloody disgusting Podcast Network. Bye. A bloody disgusting podcast network. Home of the Boo Crew. For horror-centric interviews. SCP archives. Weekly full cast storytelling. Horror queers. Genre commentary from an LGTBQ perspective. And creepy. For disturbing and terrifying creepy pastas. Listen free wherever you stream audio and at bloodydisgusting.com slash podcasts.